United States of America, and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. President Elias, I'd like to take roll. Please. Commissioner Walker. Present. Commissioner Benedicto. Present. Commissioner Yanez. Present. Commissioner Byrne. Here. Commissioner Yee. Here. Uh, Vice President Carter Overstone is in route. President Elias, do you have a quorum? Also with us tonight, we have Chief Scott from the San Francisco Police Department and Chief of Staff uh, Diana Rosenstein from the Department of Police Accountability. Great. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our June 7th, 2023 meeting. Uh, we had a nice two-week break, but we definitely missed you all, as I'm sure you missed us. So let's go ahead and get started with the first item, please. Line item one, weekly officer recognition certificate. Presentation of an officer who has gone above and beyond in the performance of their duties. Officer Kevin Gill, star number 2419, Richmond Station. Madam President, Honorable Commissioners, Chief Scott, uh, members of the public, my name is Chris Canning. I am the captain of Richmond Station, and it is my honor uh, to present before you Officer Kevin Gill of the Richmond Police Station. A few words uh, about uh, Officer Gill. Officer Gill has been a police officer here in the San Francisco Police Department for nearly eight years. His assignments have included the Ingleside Station, where he was trained, Central Police Station, where he served his probationary period. He has served the Richmond community for nearly six years as his permit assignment and currently is a member of our Swing Watch. Uh, a few things about uh, Officer Gill that I would like to note, and I am, uh, again, honored to be here um, representing uh, Officer Gill. Um, when I first landed at Richmond Station in about October, there was uh, a significant crime that occurred on Geary Boulevard, uh, very significant and traumatic for the community. There was a shooting incident, a car-to-car -car shooting that involved a hit and run, um, a foot chase of involved suspects, a firearm that was um, thrown uh, during the foot chase. Uh, officer Gill was the uh, responding officer that took control of that incident and uh, actually uh, over the course of a couple days not only conducted a very thorough preliminary investigation, identified a suspect that was captured by responding officers, coordinated the deployment of the Investigations Bureau of our CSI team and so forth, uh, and was able to uh, provide a very thorough detailed investigation during his preliminary casework to the Investigations Bureau. This resulted in an arrest, the recovery of a firearm, and uh, more than anything else was a seamless exercise and was very, very uh, helpful to me as I was able to reassure the community that there was a swift response, uh, not only from Richmond Station, but coordination from other uh, outside stations that came to assist the Richmond officers. I would have been un unable to do that without uh, the diligence of Officer Gill. Um, one thing also that I do want to note, uh, Officer Gill is an anchor on his watch. It was very easy for me to uh, note and recognize him as I worked with the lieutenants at Richmond Station. Uh, Officer Gill was mentioned a number of times, and as I worked and spoke with uh, his sergeants uh, to uh, understand a bit more about some of the things that they wanted me to communicate uh, to uh, you, honorable commissioners, uh, and to the public, uh, is that he is very thorough, responsive, reliable, consistent 
comes up for calls for service and supports his fellow officers. Um, there is a, a, a level of commitment and service in his family. Uh, his significant other and, and life partner, not only are they uh, parents together, uh, she is a committed public servant and a teacher. Uh, these things, I think, are important to note that uh, uh, not only at work, but also at home and amongst the, the family uh, dynamic of, of Officer Gill's family uh, is committed to public service. Uh, so uh, with, uh, with, again, my distinct privilege, I'd like to present to you uh, Officer Gill for this recognition. May I read this, Madam please, President? Please. Very good. Uh, Officer Gill, if I may uh, read this for the record. Uh, the San Francisco Police Department and Police Commission recognizes Officer Kevin Gill, star number 2419 of Richmond Station, as the Officer of the Week. In recognition of your dedication and professionalism demonstrated through outstanding community policing practices and inspiring greatness by exemplifying the ideals of police officers as guardians of our community, such an example of dedication is worthy of the highest esteem by the city and county of San Francisco, the San Francisco Police Department, and the San Francisco Police Commission presented on this 7th day of June, 2023, signed by Chief Scott. Congratulations. Officer Gill, welcome. Uh, thank you for being here. We want to give you an opportunity to uh, speak if you'd like. Um, and if not, then I will turn it over to my uh, colleagues uh, to uh, graduate well, you. I didn't prepare anything, but I just want to say I really appreciate this. We all know times are tough, and to receive any recognition, it really means a lot. So thank you. Well, thank you for your hard work. Captain Canning, thank you. I know you did an amazing job at the Tenderloin. It's great to see you at Richmond Station. Um, I hear some great things, and I'm really uh, glad that you gave us this officer to recognize and honor, um, and we are very grateful for your service. Uh, Commissioner Walker. Um, thank you. Um, congratulations, Officer Gill, and thank you for your service, um, and thank your family and wife, too. I mean, it's, it's extra special that you know, it's a family thing that everybody's involved in service to the city, so we really appreciate it. And uh, Captain Canny, it's good to see you. I have to come out and um, do a ride along out in Richmond now. Uh, last time I saw you, I think you were in the Tenderloin, so yeah. So again, thank you, and we I know all of us are really happy to honor your service. Commissioner Yee. Uh, thank you, Officer uh, Kevin Gale, for keeping us safe in the city. Uh, I also live in District 1 in Richmond, um, as um, Captain Kane will know that we had the um, ice cream out that day. So uh, I just want to thank you and your family for all the hard work and keeping us safe. Sometimes we don't say enough. So at this time here in the commission, we here honor you. Thank you. Thanks, sir. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you very much, President Elias. Uh, congratulations again, officer, and uh, thank you, Captain Canning, for bringing this officer to our attention. You know, this is something I say whenever I'm able to do events with officers, is too many officers uh, that have never been before the commission or met a commissioner and consider that a, a point of pride, and I, I hope you'll, <laughs> I, uh, I've never gotten in trouble, I've never met a commissioner, I'm 15 years in. I'm like, well, we do more than just discipline, and so I hope huh. that, uh, that you feel recognized, and I, I hope that you'll take the message back, that you can, you can get to meet commissioners, and it's not just when, when you're in trouble. So th thank you very much for your service. You can spread the word. We're a fun group of people. Well, we some are. of us are, I guess, but uh, <laughs> to come see us. All right, thank you. Chief, you want to go ahead and 
Yeah. Say a few things or? I just want to, oh. We'll take the picture, but I just want to say thank you, Officer Gill. I mean, these are oftentimes things don't make it to the commission unless they're Medal of Valors and, you know, those type of things. But it's that day-to-day -day work that really carries this department. So um, we appreciate your work. I appreciate your work. And thank you, Captain Canning, for recognizing Officer Gill. Thank you. Okay, they're going to take some uh, glamour shots there, and then we're going to go to public comment. <clears throat> For any member of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item one, please approach the podium. Patricia Foy from PADS and Marina Cowhall and Neighbors and Merchants. I'm here, first of all, to ask for you to please give us our officers, our retired officers at night, I forget the name of them, that should be working with Alan Bayard. And they were accepted eight months ago. They had a, have passed two, two uh, investigations and we need them badly in the Marina Cal Hollow. Number two, I'm here for another reason. Excuse me, ma'am. I'm, I'm just going to stop you for one second. Yeah. This is public comment regarding line item one, which is oh, the line item recognition. Kevin Yes. Okay. If He's you want to talk back, um, the I, next I line item is general public. I I, um, the next I line have something item. to say. Okay. I will restart your time. <laughs> Go ahead. No, we're not done yet. Commissioners, appears there is no public comment. Line item two, general public comment. Now you're up. Now you're up. Okay, I won't repeat my first sentence. Um, I'm here to discuss the misinterpretation that's been happening with this injunction. Uh, and we have done a thorough research on it. And the police department's not addressing the American with Disabilities Act concerning this injunction. And uh, we have some pictures for you in the next with him of them blocking it. We have a couple that have terrorized our neighborhood. Uh, in the last month and a half, they've, no two months, they have been involved with the Carmignani thing. They have flashed young children. They have threatened them with metal pipes. Uh, they have broken into houses, obvious dealing of drugs, and our neighbors are afraid. And the ADA says that the release of sought by the plaintiffs not bar defendants' efforts to keep public spaces clean, sanitary, and allow safe access on the sidewalks. Three feet is not a safe access. City and County of San Francisco has a six-foot regulation and it's not being followed throughout the city. Number two is we've done illegal drugs. Um, they're public health hazards and uh, James is going to speak to that. But it's, this is past, this is past just a homeless issue. This is a health safety. If they block Lombard Street or any of our alleys, you have to walk in Lombard Street in that 60 miles an hour. It's a federal highway. Someone's gonna get killed. They also run across it. 
against the lights, and either they're going to get killed. Good evening, my name is James Tyne. I'm a 22-year resident of the marina, and I'd like to share with you um, some comments tonight. The San Francisco Police Department's weak response to Nathaniel and Ashley's drug dealing, sidewalk blocking, encampments in the Lombard and Laguna area caused ongoing chaos for neighborhood business and residents. Both Nathaniel and Ashley's activities violate the American with Disabilities Act their mandates, as well as laws which address sale and use of illegal narcotics. SFPD's lack of enforcement allows them to continue their dangerous and illegal activities. Nathaniel and Ashley's recent encampments at or near buildings in the Lombard Laguna and Lombard Octavia areas of Lombard Street have blocked sidewalks, created hazardous threats to public health, and forced people uh, who use wheelchairs, crutches, or walkers to bypass or take the long way around them by having to move, moving along the edge of the sidewalk bordering Highway 101. In the case of the ADA, six-foot sidewalk clearance limit means nothing when the sidewalk where disabled and elderly must pass in full hazardous materials, waste from crystal meth and fentanyl use. Nathaniel and Ashley's are dangerous not only because of their tendencies towards violence and illegal substance abuse, but because of the waste they create when they urinate and defecate on the sidewalk and on and in front of properties where they willfully trespass. These situations can cause psychological harm and trauma to those who are disabled and elderly, who must pass Nathaniel and Ashley's camps or who must uh, wait at bus stops where they sometimes camp. These two have been on the streets for more than two years. Since January 2022, illegal activities have expanded throughout our neighborhood. Their actions lately have become more obstructive and violent, but residents and business call police, there are hours long wait and waiting time for them to arrive, if ever they do arrive. Meanwhile, Ashley and Nathaniel's illegal and dangerous- Thank you, sir. I'm afraid your two minutes are up. I would just like to state that I feel that the San Francisco Police Department has an illegal business arrangement with the White Bike Coalition. I do not see him enforcing our laws regarding bicyclists. Now they are electrified. There's electric scooters out there. They're blowing through red lights, blowing through stop signs, having little kids on the back all over town on sidewalks, I have a family member that got run over one in the sidewalk and the person took off. I went to your Parkside station and asked them to enforce it on Page Street. He said with a straight face that there was a law that they don't have to stop at the stop sign. And I told him, please write me down this law that you're quoting me. Five minutes passed, he comes in and says he made a mistake. 
that a sergeant told them that they have to obey the law the same way as cars do. And then I said, well, can we have somebody enforce us? Enforce it. And then he said, well, with another straight face, he said, you, you've heard the news that we are short-staffed. I couldn't believe it, and I said, just tell it to someone. And, I, and another thing about the police commission, I understand we're short-staffed, so why aren't we having more secretaries in the police station and more cops outside the police station? Just common sense. You don't need a gun to get hold of, you know, to call, you know, take calls and write down messages. A secretary can do that at a fraction of the cost. Thank you. Yes. Good evening. I'm going to show a video. I usually show my pictures, but you've most likely, most of you've seen this video before, but there's been an upsurge in killings in San Francisco. So it's just a reminder. I'm going to turn it on over here. Are you going to turn it on? I'll turn it on. When it does, if you just hit this button, it'll play. Hit. This is just a reminder, my son is on here too. Now? Can't hear it. It's supposed to be sound. I'm gonna stop it. Okay. Because there's no sound. I think I heard something. <coughs> Let me try it again. You gotta start my time over too. Yes, I will. I'm gonna start it now. one thing to anticipate a death because of old age or sickness. It is quite another to experience the sudden violent death of a loved one. Can anyone hear it? But is SFGov hearing it? usually louder than this. Since 2004, San Francisco has experienced an unprecedented number of homicides.
there's been an upsurge in killings in San Francisco, whether it be by the police or community violence. 60% of the homicide victims are people of color. Their loved ones. My son. Living in neighborhoods of scarcity and neglect must deal with their personal tragedy while at the same time facing the crime and violence of the unsafe neighborhoods that surround them every day. There's still a few much These are all the people that have lost loved ones in our healing circle. Violent death impacts families, friends, relatives. It's me and my daughter. And the community. Over 250 people are in the church today. I'll stop it and play it later. Thank you. Good evening, it's Thierry Phil. The, the meeting started with a good spirit, I felt, with that nice two weeks vacation. <laughs> Look, I said last time, I think the, the, the whole idea is to push the concept of responsibility, so it still applies to the obviously. Who does that? The city has to do it push the concept of responsibility for your action, reactions, creations, and their consequences. Now, something even more important, I think, is to push the concept of cre uh, critical thinking. Critical thinking. Who doesn't want to do that? You don't want to push the concept of critical thinking. Why? You don't think cri critically? That's not good. We won't solve the problems like that. If we push critical thinking, we are not to be afraid about critical thinking. We are smart adults. Look, have a nice evening. Good afternoon, Commissioners. My name is Paul Allen. On May 22, I, I sent a memorandum to the Commission urging that it comply with Section 4.1022 of the City Charter and develop an annual statement of purpose. It's easy to trivialize this, I suppose, with respect to many of the 100-plus commissions that exist in the City, but not this Commission. This Commission has more authority, more influence than any other Commission except perhaps planning. And obviously, with respect to public safety, it has the most influence of any commission in the city. And why is that? Well, obviously, because you have the authority to promulgate rules and regulations. <clears throat> but the question is, for what purpose? 
What are the goals when you develop your rules and regulations? What's the intellectual framework, if you will? What are you trying to accomplish? Um, and what are the benchmarks to measure performance? These are important questions that I think should be answered. Now, the Commission has prided itself on adopting using a standard of uh, national best practices when it comes to the development of DGOs. And frankly, one would be hard-pressed to come to any Commission meeting without hearing the words transparency and accountability echo off the walls of Room 400, usually as applied to SFPD. But with respect, I think these laudable standards are as applicable to matters of internal governance as they are to external rulemaking. And it seems to me that in that context and in this setting, the Police Commission has a special obligation, a special obligation to develop a robust uh, framework as provided by law in a manner that's consistent with its substantial civic responsibilities. Thank you. One other thing, perhaps a working group would be in order. Thank you. President Lyons, that is the end of public comment. Line item three, consent calendar, receive and file action to accept a $5,000 donation from BXP and Parks Hotel Group to be given to the recipients of the Officer of the Month awards for January, February, and March of 2023. Motion receive, wait, motion receive and file and accept the donation. For members of the public who would like to make public comment regarding line item three, please approach the podium. Second. Oh. And there is no public comment. Second, so we're good. On the, and the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. Line item four, adoption of minutes, action for the meetings of April 19th, May 3rd, May 10th, and May 17th, 2023. Move to approve all the minutes. Second. Commissioner Byrne. Um, I'd like on the 17th, uh, the minutes of the 17th, to reflect that uh, on the um, uh, resolution involving the, the Vice President uh, Carter Overstone brought forward um, that the city attorney uh, commented that the amendment uh, from Commissioner Benedicto um, about advancing the DGO, uh, um, the city attorney, as I understand it, I don't have the tape in front of me, ruled that um, that there had to be notice because it was different than what was on the agenda. And I'd like the minutes to reflect that uh, so that the record is clear. Thank you. Yeah, and just to clarify, um, Stacy, if you could double check the tape, but I believe I said it was Charter Section 4.104 that required 10 day posting requirement, if I'm not mistaken. Thank, so thank you. Well, sorry, can I ask? The would it be cleaner to uh, revise with the correct language and then bring it forward with the 
I think you can give direction to uh, Commission Secretary to make sure that it's accurately as reflected in the tape. Sorry, Commissioner Benedicto, did you have a question? Yes, I, uh, my recollection was that the 4.104 10-day was because the resolution itself wasn't posted for 10-day and not specific to the, the amendment on the night of, correct? It was specific to the content that was contained inside to the extent that it was altering policies and procedures that were already set forth. So that was the change. It's not the resolution itself. Okay. Um, it was the content of it. Okay. I think we should bring it back. Yeah. So what I'm going to... So do you want to withdraw your motion? Yeah. Can we withdraw? I'll, I'll bring a motion to adopt the minutes for April 19th, May 3rd, and May 10th. And I just need another second. Second. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item four, adoption of minutes, please approach the podium. Seeing none, on the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Elias? President Elias says yes, you have seven yeses. Line item five, Chief's report, discussion. Weekly crime trends and public safety concerns. Provide an overview of offenses, incidents, or events occurring in San Francisco having an impact on public safety. Commission discussion on unplanned events and activities the Chief describes will be limited to determining whether to counter for a future meeting. Chief Scott. Thank you, Sergeant Youngblood. Uh, good evening, President Elias, Vice President Carter Overstone, and Acting Director Rosenstein. I'll start uh, this week's report with crime uh, statistics, just overall, the, the high level. We were down a total of 7% in, in part one crimes, uh, serious crimes, and that's led by a reduction in property crimes. We're 8% down in property crimes, and our violent crime is up uh, 5%. So the total reduction is about 1,500 fewer crimes than this time last year. As far as uh, gun violence, there were no homicides for the week ending June 4th, but there was a homicide on June 5th, bringing our total number of homicides for the year to 22. Uh, this time last year, we had 20, so we're up by two. There were two shootings, uh, two shooting incidents causing injuries to two victims this week. And for the year, there is a total of 77 incidents resulting in 85 victims. That is a slight decrease, a reduction in each category of 7% for shooting victims and 3% for gun violence victims. Our homicide clearance rate year to date is 95%. So I wanna say, you know, we're still not even halfway through the year yet, but uh, some really, really uh, hard and good work being done by our investigators and everybody that has contributed to those cases that we've been able to solve this year, but we still have a lot of work in front of us. I will say this, uh, this is something that I talked about the week of April, First, uh, when really the Bob Lee murder captured you know all the all the headlines, and there was another uh, person killed that week by the name of Jermaine Reeves, and you know the, the message that week was we will continue to work that case just as hard as we did the Bob Lee case. So good news to report as far as that issue, our homicide actually our narcotics unit in doing their work in the Tenderloin arrested a suspect on that case on. May 25th, uh, and that person also had a gun with him when he was arrested. So we just wanted to give uh, some, some, some circle back on that, that particular case because I 
It's important that people know that we do put energy into all of our cases, and I know that the uh, Lee case, deservedly so, was a murder, got a lot of attention and got a lot of resources, but our investigators are working on all of our cases. So that one, uh, an arrest was made, and I just wanted to update you on that one. The other cases that are of note this week, um, this is a follow-up from a prior police commission meeting on the cold case homicides, and there was a lot of discussion about you know the, the, the uh, rewards and the website. So since that time, our homicide unit and our actually um, policy and public affairs unit with Lily Gamero and our, our technical folks have really put together some upgrades to our our cold case uh, website that's on, that's on the SFPD website. I wanted to provide an update, and this actually adds into our e efforts and our focus, you know, to work on these cold cases. So we launched a page on the SFPD website that contained homicide and cold case information, including which ones have rewards issued, issued and that reward information. To make the site more user-friendly and to provide more useful information to those who may want to provide information, our homicide unit, along with our, our people in our technical uh, division, they have really reworked this entire page on the website. The page now has a search option by name or incident date to locate specific cases. The information from each case now includes a brief summary of the incident, and if a reward has been issued for that particular case, that information is also on the website. The name and contact information of the currently assigned investigator is also on the website. So for those of you that want to take a look at it and check it out or to uh, hopefully somebody out there wants to provide information on these cold cases, the page is found at sanfranciscopolice.sfgov.org under the tab Stay Safe. And that should be at the top of the website. So um, some really um, good work, follow-up work after our commission session on that, and I just want to thank the uh, Lieutenant Sanders and others in the homicide unit, uh, Director Wilson Samosier from our, from our tech division, and Lily Gamero, who actually worked hard to put this work together. So as always, if the website doesn't hit the mark, we will improve it, but I think that is a step in the right direction. As far as significant incidents, just want to report on a couple of arrests, uh, several arrests. The, we had a robbery with a firearm on April 10th at a nightclub in 3,000 block commission. Two subjects spoke to and followed the victim down the street and robbed him of his high-end watch. During the investigation, one of the suspects was identified and a warrant, a Remy warrant was authored and approved. Uh, a ping signal warrant for a cell phone was also approved. On May 25th, the suspect was located in Daly City followed by an arrest team into San Francisco into the area of the 2300 block of 16th Street. The suspect was taken to, into custody, a loaded firearm was located on him, and that person was booked for this particular robbery, uh, and the courts uh, had no bail for this particular individual. The investigation does continue. There was a stabbing uh, on April, I mean May 29th at 9.50 a.m., in the 1,000 block of uh, Stockton and Central, the victim was working in the bakery. This one also was a very high-profile incident. The subject went behind the counter and stabbed the victim multiple times, then exited the bakery. As officers arrived, an, in an individual matching the suspect's description was seen a short distance from the bakery. Officers were able to detain the possible suspect without incident, and the victim was transported 
in stable condition. The suspect was all typically arrested for this particular uh, stabbing and was also on parole from a similar incident in 2016. The victim in that incident was the father of the victim in this incident. So uh, very horrific. But I just want a couple of things. You know, officers were there right away and were able to detain and ultimately arrest this person. And then there was a, uh, a one of our residents, community members, Robert Chong, who actually um, did what he could to interrupt this this heinous crime and actually rendered aid to our victim. And I want to just highlight that. You know, Mr. Chong, I met him at an event in Chinatown that uh, Commissioner Yi hosted last week. And it's heroic work like that that I also want to highlight because he did not have to do that. And uh, just want to thank Mr. Chong for what he did for that victim and to, to try to interrupt. And just want a, a word of to the wise on this. You know, we don't expect people to put themselves in harm's way. Uh, call the police, take notes in your mind, or if you can, you know, make note of what you can, but we don't want anybody to put themselves in danger. And Mr. Chong was very uh, wise about how he intervened in that situation, and thankfully uh, nobody else was hurt, and I want to thank him for that, that work. Another arrest was a robbery with force of an elderly, elderly victim that happened on the 100 block of Stockton on on June 4th at 1.15 p.m., the victim was standing in the area when the suspect grabbed her wallet or his wallet from his hands. The suspect tried to flee and the victim chased him on foot. A second suspect tried to trip the victim and was unsuccessful. The victim continued their pursuit of the two officers or his pursuit of the two, of the two subjects when two Chinatown officers on high visibility patrol witnessed the victims chasing the suspect. The officers got involved uh, we were able to catch and detain the suspects. And then the officer was alerted to another suspect who was taken into custody, and he had a gun in his waistband. The victim's stolen property was recovered, and both individuals were arrested on that particular incident. The last thing I want to talk about with arrests, there have been a number of shootings in the Tenderloin recently. And uh, thankfully, you know, many of these, or several of these, uh, nobody was actually hit. But we have made some arrests and we've adjusted our, our the strategies in terms of trying to address this issue. Uh, one was at 644 Larkin Street. Uh, that one did not result in an arrest. There was a, a shot spotter activation. Uh, witnesses were located, told officers that suspects fired shots and fled in opposite directions. There were no gunshot victims, but two unfired bullets were recovered from the scene and will be analyzed to see if we can match this up with other shootings. There was an assault, uh, a firearm discharge in the, uh, one, the 100 block of Jones Street. Uh, this one, there was no arrest. Medics on view or observed the shot, shots fired. When the police arrived, they located evidence of a shooting. An off-duty officer driving home heard the gunfire. Witnesses told the officer that he saw the subject point firearm and fired three times. The off-duty officer observed a potential suspect who uh, the officer believed was involved in this. That person was detained, uh, but later released. There was not enough evidence to hold him for the shooting, but they were detained and that investigation is ongoing. Okay, buddy. I am. Tyler's gotta listen to the chief. Okay, um, there were two others, three others that I'll quickly talk about. F shots fired at Larkin and Turk, 
three people were arrested for this particular case. And then lastly, there was a shots fired at 25 Mason and a person was arrested and a gun was recovered in that particular case. Captain Chan and, and Tenderloin has adjusted his patrol strategies to make sure that there are officers, particularly at night, uh, when a lot of our uh, people are out doing this type of activity. Uh, we are putting more officers or redeploying officers to make sure there's a focus in that area. And that has led to some of these arrests because officers are right there when these incidents happen. So we'll continue with that strategy while we do our work. And that concludes my report. Thank you. My buzzer went off, thank, so I cut you, my report Chris. short. But, <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, President Elias. So let me start with the patch. Uh, this is Pride Month, and I believe since 2019, uh, the police department, uh, with the commission's approval, have allowed our officers to, wa to wear the uh, Pride patches. So as of uh, uh, June 1st, again, our officers are allowed to wear Pride patches and where appropriate, wear Pride t-shirts. These patches, uh, the SFPD Pride Alliance are actually, uh, will take donations for these, these pat patches and any proceeds from those donations will be donated to charity. So we've raised, uh, Pride Alliance has raised thousands of dollars from the proceeds of the donations from these patches and it's for a good cause, but it's really to support pride. Uh, there's a lot going on right now in our country as, as far as this issue. And we wanna make sure that people understand that in this city, our values are we support pride and we will stand by uh, our patches and our, our, our people in our community to have the freedom to do the things that we are supposed to be able to do in this country. So um, please help support the effort if you uh, wish to do so. As far as some of the strategies, the, the narcotics and the open air drug markets. So one of the things that's happening, and this is uh, related to, somewhat related to the governor's support from the CHP officers in the Tenderloin, is we've redeployed some of our officers and put uh, uh, some of the Tenderloin officers into uh, teams actually that are doing a lot more of the arrests on the on the on the narcotic sales side, and the CHP's visibility kind of at least has uh, gives us the ability to have a uniform presence in parts of the Tenderloin. As our officers, many of them have uh, are working plainclothes assignments when those arrest teams are, are in place, and that has resulted in uh, more arrests just across the board for narcotics dealing. The other thing on the other side of that is the, the open air drug use, the open air uh, possession of drugs and everything that comes with that, um, this police department has to address that issue. And, and it, there's nothing fancy about this. We're just gonna do our jobs. 
and the officers have been instructed that when they see the open air drug use to to engage intervene and some of that has resulted in citations and arrests uh, if those folks are arrested they are being transported to county jail and being booked and so the overarching issue on this from the part that we this department gets from the community over and over again is that this activity sometimes goes unabated and there's really just a culture right now on the streets that people can use narcotics and shoot up and smoke meth and smoke fentanyl and and it's okay and uh, we get a lot of complaints about that issue so one of the things that this police department can and will do is just do our jobs you know that is not the answer to solve addiction we realize that we do try very hard to connect people to services um, and we will continue to do that a lot of our officers have these relationships with you know a lot of the people that they see in the streets um, but on the other side of that you know when an officer sees this activity they can't just drive by they have to engage and not let people just go and abate it when they are violating the law by ingesting narcotics on the streets and then all the other stuff that goes along with that 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 our public members of our public complain about so it's a small piece of the puzzle granted you know the law enforcement piece of this is not the answer is not the solution I will say that uh, as long as I'm in this profession but we are a part of the puzzle and we have to do our jobs so we want to make sure that we support officers to do their jobs with compassion with empathy but at the same time we have to address this issue because there are uh, there's way too much of this activity going on in our city and it 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 has to be abated so this is not a pilot thing we actually have uh, officers dedicated to do this type of work and when they are called to do so they also are supporting the narcotics sales enforcement piece of this these officers are in uniform they support the plainclothes operation to disrupt the the narcotic sales and again the CHP being visible in the tenderloin with the officers that they deployed at the tenderloin seven days a week allows us to have some uniform presence and frees us up to do a few more of those types of things so that is where we are I think this is agendized I believe or it will be I, I will be okay so we'll be agendizing it for next week yes thank you uh, President Elias and we can talk about it more in detail then but um, we do and we are transparent about it there's nothing fancy about this except for we just need to go back to the basics and do that part of our job better and more consistently um, great chief so two things I wanted to say first I remember when um, you we voted in the, the several years ago um, when the patch first was created this patch the pride patch and we had to vote to allow officers to wear it because there were strict um, restrictions on the uniform and so it was kind of a, a big deal I remember mm -hmm. uh, and the pride Alliance was here and presented um, did a great presentation so I would offer or extend an invitation to them to come back to uh, this Commission which uh, was not here before um, to share I think some of the history and uh, allow us to buy their merch again um, because I think they have some really cool things um, and their story is great and whatever we can do to contribute or help contribute to their cause I think is important I will, I will um, make sure that they know that that invitation is out there and I can't speak for them but just having you know, monthly meetings with them for the time that I've been here the entire time I've been here I'm sure they will be excited about that 
Great. I, I really hope that they accept before, our. Before Pride March. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, hopefully. Next week. Next week we got two more meetings. <laughs> um, okay. Second thing, and um, so I have a lot of questions about this uh, open air drug um, pr program or new enforcement that you're doing. I guess um, my question is, you know, how, how is this different? I think, you know, open air drug use has always been illegal. Um, nothing's changed. So how is it, and I know your new directive to the department is to do your job um, and to do something about it, but how is that, how is this going to be different from what's been happening where it's been illegal but nothing's been done? We, we have to be consistent, and I'll just, I'll put this in the context of my own eyes from going out and walking with officers on many occasions, going out even sometimes without officers, patrol officers, and seeing this with my own eyes. Um, when you see people uh, who are, are, are using openly in, in the streets, uh, we've gotten to a point, even when they see a uniform officer, it's like, okay. And not that, it, it, let me be, I want to be very clear on this. You know, we're not looking for people to, to fear, you know, law enforcement or anything like that. But what we are hoping to do is to discourage the use of this in the streets because it's gotten to that point. Um, and, you know, this, this area, the Civic Center Plaza area, parts of the Tenderloin is really kind of the epicenter of, but it happens all over the city. And it is nothing new, but, you know, and this has happened over, over time where we've just kind of gotten away from it. And there's a lot of reasons why, and this is not about what's going on with the court systems or what's going on with the prosecutions. This is not about any of that. This is about what can we do and what can we control to do our jobs like the public expects us to. I've been to enough meetings where people are really upset with what they see and what they, with this issue. And consistency in enforcement, you know, this is, we're not putting um, 60, 70 people and, and just rounding people up but just consistency and enforcement. And it's not hard to spot. I've been out there enough to know. So what we want to be, number one, is consistent. Number two is it's really hard for officers, particularly in the Tenderloin, because their call load is probably one of the busiest in the city, to really focus their efforts on this because they are jumping from call to call to call. And the statistics bear that out in terms of how busy the Tenderloin is, particularly in the peak hours. So to have a dedicated unit to supplement that work so they can spend the time to be consistent is really important. Is that new? No, I'm not saying it hasn't been done before, but we haven't done it this way probably in a long time, and not during my time here, where that, that is their focus. Their focus is to, to curb the open air uh, drug usage and try to get people into services if we can. Right, but I guess my question is, how are you going to get police officers to do their job? Because that's what the crux of this is. Support the work that they do. I mean, so first of all, I... The, because I, I, the other thing that comes to mind is the emergency declaration that was made for the Tenderloin and all of these resources that were flooded, that the Tenderloin were flooded with, and it didn't have really an impact, so... Yeah, so let's talk about that for a minute. So part of what I, what I wish had happened when that emergency declaration, that our officers were able to actually um, be able to take people to the Lincoln Center or, or, or at least be a part of that. And that 
part of that equation was not done. As a matter of fact, for, for a variety of reasons, you know, we, we were hands off in terms of trying to get people to that linkage center. And, and I'm not trying to blame anybody. I just wish, you know, looking back, I wish that we had been more forceful about letting us be a part of that. Right. Um, so there's no linkage center. The other part of that is we haven't been really consistent with addressing this issue because people, you know, use on the streets quite often, all the time. And whatever reason that, you know, we aren't consistent in addressing that issue, I, I think has contributed to what we see in the streets. And it, it is still against the law and it's still uh, an enforceable offense, but we have to be consistent. You know, we're, there, there are more people out there then we have the ability to arrest right now, to, to be honest with you. And, and so the officers can only do what they do. If they make an arrest, they still gotta go to the county jail, they gotta book, that takes time, they gotta write the reports. Uh, if a person needs medical attention, they have to make sure that that person gets the medical attention. So there's a capacity issue associated with this. The thing that we can do is be consistent. And this is not a, you know, this is not some policy where we wanna just go out and I mean, these are misdemeanor crimes, you know, people, right. people will, they're not going to be detained for prolonged periods of time. And if they have to be arrested, you know, hopefully one thing that I know is happening that's a part of this is they are offered services while they're in custody and when they are released, they're offered services. Hopefully that piece at some point uh, for the people that are willing to take advantage of those services will pay some dividends to address the, the, the bigger issue here, the root is addiction. Arresting people will not solve addiction. It's not going to cure addiction. But what I do think it will do with consistency is it'll set a tone of, you know, this is not okay, and we're not just going to allow people to do it without, without abatement. And I think you raised a great point, which was my second question, which is are there, like, have there been conversations as to what the overall game plan is? Because it seems to me, from what I've read thus far, it's either 19 or 25 people have been arrested under this 647F. None of them have accepted services, but I think you raise a good point, which is this is a misdemeanor crime with a maximum jail time of six months, which means you do actual three months in custody if you're even kept in custody. So you're now arresting people, a majority are not gonna be uh, in custody, and then, then what? You yeah. know, and then, or if they are, they stay for three months, they've maxed out, there's no, so, and we have a court system where, you know, people are waiting for trials on serious cases for years. Yeah. And so this, this is going to add to that backlog and affect that. So, like, this is just one piece in a very multi-layered puzzle. And so exactly. I'm wondering if people are having conversations about yeah. how this really plays out rather than just... Yes, yes, on all those, and, and to, your, to, the, to a lot of, let me, let me address some of what you said. And maybe, uh, and not to put you on the spot, and maybe this is something when we agendize this issue, you can cover in uh, detail, because I am going to ask for the st stats on the number yeah. of arrests, services from the 647, CHP, and National Guard. Yeah, and, and just, just a correction, so it's, it's you know, 647 is one of the things that we can arrest for, but a lot of um, the arrests have been for you know, 11550 of the health and safety code, code particularly when people are using openly and they're under the influence. Um, but that's a lot, still a misdemeanor. It's still a misdemeanor. Yeah. Um, I think nine of the, the number you, I think the number is nine, and I'll have the actual statistics with me. I think the number is nine had warrants, and some of those were felony warrants. 
for other offenses. So there, there is, you know, that too, where some of the folks that we are coming in contact with have warrants. And, and I'll, I'll say this, because I'll say it next week, out of all the people that we arrested right now, and this is self-reported information, but only two are San Francisco residents out of all the people that we, we arrested. So um, there is a plan to see what we can do with that as well, because, you know, there are services in the city to connect people with their families and that type of thing. And we, got, we have to bring all these things to the, to, the, to the table. Well, I look forward to it being agendized because the little um, sort of tidbits that we get in the news and from these briefings um, from, uh, I don't think that they're sufficient enough for the public who have a lot of questions. So I yeah. think that it's gonna be incumbent upon you to really lay it out and be more transparent with these programs. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I'm looking forward to that. Great, all Vice right. President Carter Overstone. Thank you, President Elias. Thank you, Chief, for the report. Um, just a couple of follow-up questions on this issue of um, being more aggressive, inter intervening with folks who are openly using drugs. Um, so you mentioned tonight, and I think it's been reported that folks are being booked at 850 Bryant when they are being arrested and that they are being provided and or offered services. Can you just clarify what services those are and who is providing them? So uh, public health, our, our public health, uh, I, I don't know if they're actually doctors, but you know, our public health department is in the jails to provide those services. And it's a, it's a variety of addiction services or detox services that they are, depending on what the individual needs are. Um, and that will continue and hopefully this will get some traction. You know, there are people that you know, as the adage goes, meeting people where they're at. You know, sometimes when people are ready to accept those services, then they take advantage of it. Um, so that is that will continue to be a part of this. And then when they're when they are in custody, um, they are, depending on what their condition is, uh, they are offered services. And sometimes, if it if it goes to medical care, you know, we have to we have to provide that medical care when they're in custody. So that will be an ongoing thing and really it's, it's there's a range of services this city has a lot of services for people in need and a lot of people do take advantage of those services so we want to get to the, this population who uh you know officers are on the streets even before we were arresting there was engagement and we tried a variety of strategies to try to get to this you know 2018 we we had a program called the the healthy streets intervention where we were taking people to cark and all these services that i'm talking about you know, people were released at CARC, they were office services. We tried the LEAD program, which I hope that we can re-engage with LEAD, where these arrests were held in abeyance and, you know, the services were, were offered at that point. Uh, we've tried a variety of things and none of them have really been sustained. Uh, but the part that we have to be consistent on is what is our role in terms of when we see these things happening on the streets? I really don't, you know, I don't think the right thing to do is to just say, you know, there's nothing we can do. And we're, we're only one part of this, you know, and we do have the power to enforce the law and we have the power to get people at least off the streets and whether that be if they agree to services, services or if, if it's appropriate, you know, the county jail and they'll get released, but hopefully we'll keep offering services as, as that happens. Great, thank you. Um, thank you. you. You mentioned at one point, I think you said this is not a pilot program, and I wanted to ask about that because I, 
I had heard that last week there was a pilot program where six officers were assigned to do this full time under one sergeant supervision and that that was going to serve as a pilot program um, that the department would learn from, see how it goes, lessons learned before it's implemented more widely. Just wanted to ask, am I right? Is that correct or not? And then secondly, um, kind of if so, if you could report kind of what yeah, lessons yeah. learned were. It's, it's eight officers and a sergeant. And it, when we say pilot, you know, the commitment is to be consistent, to continue to do this work. Now, we've talked a lot about our, you know, our staffing issues in, in this commission hearing. Um, but there's a commitment to reassess, you know, while we, after the first couple of months. Um, we have issues in these officers. They work mostly daytime hours right now. Um, and I mean, this has been raised in the commission about how the streets look at night. And so we're going to have to figure out what to do at night in order to, to curb some of this activity. And so we, we won't expand if, you know, we won't expand until we actually see kind of how this is working. We want to be very thoughtful with the you know, resources that we do have. Um, it's really hard to pull and task patrol with this just because of the call load. And we need consistency and we need some focus for this area. So pilot is the beginning, it's the beginning for sure. Uh, we, we, it's a task force because we had to, you know, have to abide by the MOU in terms of scheduling and all those things. And the chief of police does have the ability to stand up a task force to, to address specialized problems. And, you know, and the people that are there want to be there. They volunteer, which is really important. They want to do this work and they're excited about it. So we definitely want to support the work and make sure that we do, we do it the right way. Great. Thanks. So just so I have it right, we've got eight officers assigned to do this full time hasn't been rolled out beyond that. Um, and then just, you know, just wanted to know, since we're in the pilot phase, how will we be evaluating success or failure? Is it going to be like we've discussed number of people who we can refer to services, number of arrests, number of overdoses? What are going to be the factors that we use to evaluate the success of the program? Yeah, so ultimately all those things will factor in. I mean, the, 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 the big picture bottom line is, is to reduce the number of people dying on the streets, or not just on the streets, but the overdoses, period. And that's why, you know, part of our strategy to, to get as much fentanyl off the streets as we, as we, you know, legally can is a part of the other part of this. But the arrest matrix or whatever those, those arrests end up being is really not the important thing because hopefully the arrests, if the activity is not happening, we will make a lot, many fewer arrests. You know, we want to curb the activity. And the main test is we have to see a difference on the streets. I mean, I, I can come in here and, and cite arrest statistics all day long. That's, that's not a measure of success. It's a measure that we're out there doing some work. But if we don't see a difference on the street, I mean, our, our narcotics arrests are up, you know, year to date from where they were this time last year. They're up you know, pretty significantly. But I just had a meeting with the Tenderloin and, you know, business community, and they're still seeing the dealers out there. And they're like, well, it's changed a little bit, but not much. So really, is the, what difference are we seeing on the streets? Can people live better quality of life without that being in their communities, that they got to step through, step over, run through a gauntlet of drug dealers and the whistles and the cat calls and all the stuff that comes along with that? And some of the stuff that I read tonight. I didn't say this. I ran out of time. 
I think three of those shootings that I talked about tonight were absolutely narcotics related. On top of that, you know, we had a guy that had overdosed and he's in the car with a gun in the, in the console that anybody could have, you know, taken and killed him and anybody else. So there is, there is a whole universe of, you know, quality of life and criminal things that are associated with this and we want it all to be reduced. So that's gonna be the ultimate measure. It's not about the numbers, it's really not. But we do have to change the behavior as much as we can impact that so there's less of it. Thanks, Chief. Just one last question on this issue. Um, so I pulled up Department Notice 21085 entitled Syringe Access and Disposal, Disposal Programs, which was issued in May of 2021. Um, I know you're very familiar with it. You issued it. Um, but, but briefly to recap, basically state law authorizes and in fact encourages local governments to uh, provide certain services to individuals using drugs, including uh, as a public health matter. So providing clean syringes, fentanyl test strips, um, things like that, because we, we realize that will save lives and stop the spread of communicable or serious, serious diseases by, by doing that. Um, I just want to ask, you know, is this new program, are the, those officers in this pilot task force, are they, you know, abiding by this? And the reason I ask is because I was reached out to by a member of the community that was concerned that officers were not abiding by this, that officers were kind of intervening while these types of public health services were being provided. Um, so I did want to ask you about whether we're yeah. continuing to abide by this uh, department notice and, and if there have been any issues with implementing the mayor's new directive and abiding by our, our commitment to public health. Yeah, that is something that we are very familiar with and um, we are abiding by that. So what we have asked our officers to do, particularly for, for usage, you know, you see somebody actually, you know, smoking whatever, whatever substance they're smoking or, or injecting, snorting, whatever the case may be, uh, that health code does not impact the officer's ability to go make that arrest for either the person being under influence or actually using in public, which is another section of 11550. Um, so that is where the focus has been. With the paraphernalia, we kind of went through this and really about a year ago, actually, because uh, we were, at that point, we, we did run into a lot of these conversations with a lot of the public health people, the service providers, the CBOs. And so we had to really make sure that we and this, our officers understood the health order, which basically says that if the person gets, you know, paraphernalia from, paraphernalia from an agency that's you know, authorized to give it, that it's not, it's decriminalized. Basically, that's the short of it. And so, yeah, we have to abide by that and we understand the health reasons that those health orders are there, but it still doesn't give people the right or the permission or through the, through the law, then circumvent that part of the law where people can then take that paraphernalia and use in public. So we have to really stay in separate lanes there and that's what we will do. All of our, no, nobody's been arrested for paraphernalia. Um, if the paraphernalia is evidence of usage, you know, we can still seize that paraphernalia. They're smoking in public, you know, so, and that's what, that's what the strategy is. So, 
Uh, it's a good point. It's something that has been raised with us by community organizations. We've met with community organizations, uh, several of them, when this was really a, a hot topic about a year ago. And we made the adjustments and made sure that our officers are trained on that issue and retrained on the bulletin where needed. Okay, great, thanks. Thank you. Um, leaving this issue, uh, you know, it's been, it's been a couple of weeks since last meeting, so a couple of things have been reported. So one issue that was reported was that there was a vehicle pursuit for carjacking, um, that one person was killed in the, pro in the course of the pursuit, and I think several, maybe four, were injured. Um, first thing I just wanted to ask was whether any officers were injured in the course of that. No, I don't believe any officers were injured. I know that's been several weeks ago, but I don't think any officers were injured in that. And, I, and I'll verify that before this hearing is over. Okay. And is there, aside from the investigation into the carjacking, of course, is there kind of any review into um, into our vehicle pursuit policy and in, in light of this, in light of this occurrence? Because, I mean, it's, this is carjacking is clearly a violent felony that our policy permits pursuit for, but at the same time, our policy tries to balance apprehending people who have committed crimes with, you know, the danger to the public. And here, obviously, the results were quite tragic. And I'm just curious if there's any, if the ball has started rolling at all in terms of assessing whether this is a policy we should be taking another look at. Yeah, the ball has started rolling on that. And so with those types of pursuits, there is a review. There's an administrative review on that to see if policies were followed, what's in policy. And that ball has started rolling. So I don't have the final results on that yet, but the ball, ball has started rolling. Okay, great. Um, last question for me it was also reported last month that um, I think maybe it was in the course of a lawsuit that um, SFPD availed itself of, its, of the new ability to get access to private security cameras to surveil a Tyree Nickel protest. Um, do, yeah. you, you're looking at me like maybe I have that wrong. Is that all right? Well, no, I'm just, uh, I, this was during the Memphis, the Memphis, uh, yes. Tyree Nichols from yes. Memphis. No, no, I'm well. I'm not aware of the lawsuit. I'm not saying that there is not a lawsuit, but I don't have any. I mean, I wouldn't comment on it if I did, of course. But. Well, I guess, yeah, the law. I'm, I could be wrong about the lawsuit piece. I guess the question I want to ask is: do, Are are you aware of and prepared to discuss the issue of re requesting access to the video cameras to surveil the protest? No, not aware of it, but I will uh, follow up if, okay. if you want to agendize we could, that. So. We could chat about it or bring okay. it up next week. That's okay. everything for me. Thanks, Chief. Thanks. Commissioner Thank Benedicto. <clears throat> Thank you, President Elias. Uh, a couple of questions, Chief. Um, when answering some of President Elias' questions, she uh, cited to a, a media report that noted that there have been 25 arrests made under this new program, and so far none have accepted the services upon release. Is that consistent with your understanding? Is that accurate, the 25 and no? Uh, I think that was as of yesterday, so that number is higher today. Okay. Um, Do you know if sure. any today accepted services? Um, I don't know if any accepted services today, but I know the number is higher than 25. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know as part of some of these new uh, initiatives we're seeing, uh, there was an announcement of a, unif of a unified command center being set up. Has that, has that been launched, this unified command center? No, uh, that, that has not been launched yet. So 
it's really about you know coordination with a lot of what was, has been raised, you know, particularly with uh, Commissioner Elias, is with the many entities that really have to be involved in this work for us to 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 do what we need to do as a city. It has to be coordinated. You know, police department is one part and a small part in the big scheme of things of this. But we have to work with public health. We have to work with public works. We have to work with you know homeless and uh, supportive housing and because um, all these things kind of touch and coordination is on the forefront of, of what we have to do as the many departments that are involved in this. So there will be a coordination effort and a center uh, that will be stood up, and, but it's not stood up yet. Do you know when the Unified Command Center will be stood up? Or an estimate, obviously you can't say for certain. Yeah, well, it's, it should be in the very near future and hopefully you, within the next couple of weeks, I believe, that we'll have everything together. You know, we'll be a part of the Unified Command. And it, uh, some of these conversations are happening anyway, but to, to have the people who have a stake in this, you know, in a room, you know, setting daily plans, setting daily objectives and things like that is really important. And that we're all really looking at the bigger picture. Some of the questions that, you know, this commission has asked about, you know, what are the measurements of effectiveness? It's not about numbers. You know, we can say we helped a thousand people. We can say we arrested a thousand people, but have we have we saved lives and, and are the street conditions better? So those are the things that we really got to be focused on. You know, it's not about numbers. I know that's a means to get us to where we need to go, maybe. But what if we could do it without making arrests? You know, let's try to figure that out. You know, right now I think we got to change the behavior, but you know, we're going to do our best to to uh, to be thoughtful about how we do this and be as efficient with our resources as we as we can. Perfect. Um, if you could let us know once that command center is stood up. From, from what I understand from the announcement of it, it's going to be led by the Department of Emergency Management. Is that your understanding? I don't think that all, any of that has been decided yet. Okay. Uh, but definitely I will update the commission because it will happen pretty quickly, I believe. So, so um, is DPH going to be part of that unified command center? Yes. And then uh, emergency management will be part of that? Yes. Will CHP be part of that? Uh, CHP won't be a part. I mean, they're, they're doing what they do. Um, and, you know, in unified commands, usually there's like a you know, fire branch, a law branch. And the SFPD portion of this, this, this team will carry whatever the law enforcement mission is. And if we have to get, you know, other agencies on board to help out and do a part of this, it'd be our role to do that. But I don't anticipate that the CHP will be a part of the unified command. National Guard? I, th I well, one of the things that the governor has offered is some some administrative assistance from the National Guard, and you know this is one of the things that they do very well in terms of how to set these centers up and things like that. So we are hoping that we get some administrative support. I mean, that's what the the one of the things that's been said publicly um, is what is their role and the administrative role. They have analysts and they have people that actually do. The type of work that will, you know, maybe alleviate, hopefully alleviate, not maybe hopefully alleviate, you know, some of our city people that are strapped to do some of those administrative tasks. So I'm hoping, I'm hopeful. I, I, I'm going to be clear because I, you know, a lot of this is coming together. So I'll report when these things happen. But um, I'm hopeful that those resources that the governor has offered will be put to good use in that way. Um, I know we've uh, been asking for regular updates on the use of the new um, surveillance ordinance. I think 
last time we met, there were, I think, five or six cases that, that we discussed. Do, do you know, if, have there been any new uses of that ordinance and live monitoring in the last reporting period? You know, I did not get an update for you, Commissioner, on this one, but I know that is going to be agendized soon. I think the first for our quarter, first quarter. Okay, yeah, perfect. So. I look forward to hearing that update then. Yeah. All right, that's all for me. Thank you, Chief. Thank you. Commissioner Byrne. Thank you, President Elias. Um, I, I have a number of questions on a couple of different topics, but first off, um, um, I think it's important. Uh, I, I read in the media um, that there was a—I uh, remember when I first came on the commission, there was a 16-year-old uh, young teenage uh, a woman that uh, died of an overdose in San Francisco, and I, I was happy uh, to read that the San Francisco police have made an arrest because the, that lady apparently came from a, a troubled household and, and that she wasn't forgotten. Uh, I think that's important, and, and, and for that, I, before I go into my other stuff, I, I think that that's important to mention. Thank um, you. Um, that, that life was as important as Mr. Lee's life. And, in any event, uh, the next thing, uh, Chief, is um, uh, I had sent a client over uh, to get a, a, it's a signature required for a U visa. And this is very important to the undocumented community, particularly in San Francisco. Um, my client, uh, they, they didn't do anything. In fact, they weren't very complimentary. But my client is very persistent and went back. So that appears to be under control. But my client reported to me that there were three other people there seeking the signature on the on the immigration form that's required to apply for a U visa. Uh, for the public, those are victims <clears throat> victims of certain criminal offenses that allow uh, people to stay in the United States uh, to change their status. And um, they also were uh, turned away. Uh, they're not my clients. I, I didn't even know if they're represented. But I think it's, and that's why I'm calling it out publicly, I think it's important that the police t uh, take this matter uh, very seriously because it's important to be able to reach into the, uh, San Francisco has a substantial immigrant population uh, and it's important uh, that they feel that they can confide in. We need their cooperation for criminal offenses uh, and it, it's an important part and I, I hope that that was just a, a, a blip but uh, um, as I said, it appears to be with my client but uh, there were three other ones there that day. Um, the next thing um, that I wanted to uh, uh, comment on, obviously, you had indicated earlier that there are more officers have been deployed to the Tenderloin. Is that day shift, swing shift, or night shift? Uh, they're on day shift right now. Um, and is that the eight plus the sergeant? That, yes. Uh, okay. But no more than that. And, yeah. no, none, and you had mentioned something about something needs to be done in the evening time. In the evening time, yes. So that and so they they do go down in, into Southern District and some of particular like Seventh and Mission. That's actually Southern. Um, but the, pro, the the issues that we're facing are are pretty substantial there as well. But Tenderloin and and part of Southern, just the right upper part of Southern. I, I, I'm familiar. Right. Uh, the you understand that there, there's a certain irony to the fact that uh, two weeks ago. I'm over near um, uh, Fulton and uh, Park Presidio in the transverse uh, that crosses the park. And there was a San Francisco police officer uh, conducting a speed trap. And in normal times, uh, I would not, how would you say, that, that's their job. It was the daytime and all that. But with, uh, with an average of uh, 
almost two people a day dying of mostly fentanyl overdose in San Francisco, you know, the plurality of them or the majority of them in the Tenderloin, it's not, you know, from my mind, it wasn't the best use of, of resources. It's only one officer and it was only one. But, but I think that the, the more important message is to deal with that. And the other part that I want to br uh, bring up and is that I understand the, the people that have addiction problems and, and what the police department wants to do. But there is a second component. A number of people come into San Francisco, as you probably know better than I do, uh, to deal drugs. You know, they've got backpacks on them and all that. Whenever there is a uniform police presence, particularly along uh, 7th Street between Mission and Market and up in the UN Plaza, or even over on Golden Gate across from UC San Francisco, they disperse, they leave. And that's one of the ways, because we're talking about, as you indicated, we're talking about um, uh, bringing a quality of life to the neighborhood. Uh, but this is an issue. Those people, it's not how many, I agree with you, Chief, it's not how many are arrested, but there is a huge deterrent effect to a uniform police presence on those areas as many hours as possible. And with all due respect to the California Highway Patrol, driving around in a vehicle, you know, they'd be much better off, you know, s pulling their cars in and standing at 7th and Market Street than what they're doing. I, I look forward to the, um, the upcoming um, uh, agendized matter, but the police department is the primary people to deal with those drug dealers. It's not public health, it's not anything, it's not the other institutions that exist in San Francisco. And that a police presence, a uniform police presence, will, it, it, I see it with my own eyes, it will deter that type of behavior. Uh, and they need to be, uh, they need to feel like this is not the place to do business. Like it, we've got to go somewhere else, but we're not gonna be doing it in the Tenderloin uh, District of San Francisco. And, and, and I think that's the message the police department needs to send. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Commissioner. And can I follow up with you on the U visa thing? We'll get the, whatever information you can share so we can follow up. Yeah, uh, like I said, my, my client um, it went back and it, it appears that it'll be sorted, I'll, I'll know next week. But I wasn't going to, I would deal with my own client separately. But what my client reported to me about the three other individuals there, and that, that, that did annoy me, and I thought that that was appropriate to bring up because yeah, you, you know better than I do, we need the cooperation of the immigrant community in San Francisco, and, and this is a, a, a manner in which they can legally stay in the United States, but uh, more importantly, we need their cooperation. Yes, and, and we need to, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Yi. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much there, President, uh, President of Cindy Elias. Uh, first off, Chief, I want to thank uh, for your report for homicide. Uh, for the last two weeks, there is zero um, uh, death there. And, and the thing I'm saying that is because um, the incidents you mentioned about uh, the stabbing on uh, 1000 Stockton Street, 
there was a community uh, member or leader that was right there when it did happen. Uh, applaud him for it. Um, his name is Robert Chang. And he turned around and the person was uh, being, being um, stabbed, which he didn't know at the first uh, sign of it. But as he um, ushered the person away, told him to get out, he looked down and saw the person bleeding profusely down there and he rendered aid. Um, as I was told, if he didn't stop the bleeding, the person would probably would have died. And that would have been um, one of the statistics here is a homicide. So I thank him and then your officers for arriving on scene promptly. So that's uh, yeah, a, good, a good thing that happened. But I'm just uh, gonna, I guess, go over to, on the Tenderloin where we have the fentanyl death. April uh, was reported by the Chronicle was 66 uh, death overdose. So I don't know whether it's in the Tenderloin or uh, in the private use, but uh, I was wondering if we can probably get a chart, see where they are. Uh, these these um, overdose deaths are happening. And to see whether the arrests that we are doing out there is uh, seeing a drop in the, I guess, the fentanyl over overdose. As uh, Commissioner Burns says, visibility is a deterrent for drug sales in our Tenderloin and throughout the city. Uh, we have to stop it. Um, at the rate of 66 a month, we'll be approaching uh, over 700 deaths here in our city. Many of them are our, I guess, our kids, our mom. They have somebody there that, um, you know, we'll miss them, and we need to stop that. So I'm looking forward for more, um, I guess, police involvement in keeping these uh, drug sales off our streets as much as possible. So again, thank you, Chief, and uh, your members keeping us safe. Uh, I know it's a difficult job. Uh, so thank you very much, Chief. Thank, thank you, Commissioner. Um, thank you, Chief, for the report. Um, I think that, I, I mean, I, I read the article and I've heard all the news uh, broadcasts about the, the new um, policy or sort of recommitting to it, and I think it would be a really good thing to um, have an agenda item, but also maybe include some of our partner um, agencies. Um, you know, addiction, as you've pointed out, and I think everybody agrees, it's not it's not solved by putting people in jail. Um, so the issue of, of how the police make sure that it's safe, but still, um, you know, there's the, all the heart, the heart team now, I think is what the Department of Emergency Management issued in response to the, um, the CART presentation. Right. Um, you know, it's a complicated, problem that we all see. I mean, I, I, I walk in, t in the city a lot, and I just the other night I walked through 7th and Mission um, and was threatened because I was trying to, I probably was looking too much at what was going on. And um, I mean, that's real. You know, it's not, it's not without consequence. 
Um, and I also will remind everybody here and listening that during COVID, there was a real intentional effort to let people be on the street and not do enforcement. And I think that that was a call from City Hall and um, you know, maybe rightfully so because there were complicated issues out then. But it does set, it sets up a, the habit of what we see now. And it does interfere with the public right away. I mean, we heard from the public this morning on this on this topic of, um, you know, when people are are using and occupying a whole sidewalk, then folks who are disabled and seniors can't. And you know, I've I've seen that in every neighborhood, Mission Street. Um, and I think that it's a situation where, yes, if you have uniformed officers there, then they do disperse, but they go somewhere else. So it it clearly is is we're running up into the situation where we have not enough staff to handle this, as you said earlier. So really coordinating in a real way and letting in, and what can people do about transporting people to the hospital? I mean, the sheriff's office can maybe do a little bit more than they do, especially waiting at the hospital if somebody's been taken there or taking people to the services. Um, you know, we're also discussing, you know, how the private sector and the nonprofits. I mean, how how is that coordination and communication happening? So, it's it's all going to be presented to the the commission at some point. So I just want to support that. I I think that, um, really, that the only way we know what's going to happen, what how it's working, is seeing what's happening in the streets, including not just arrests, but you know, the overdose deaths, how many people get into treatment, how many people are living in the street as opposed to in, in residential treatment. And um, it's, it's just a complicated issue. So I just, I wanna support that. I, I was in the Tenderloin last night after a, um, a play and, you know, it's, it's sad. You know, we really need to take care of people and, and make sure they have what they need and it's, it's a dangerous situation out there with fentanyl. So I just want to say I support the what you're doing and look forward to the the agenda item and um, really thank the folks out there doing the work. Th thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, President Elias. Um, and uh, I know that this item is going to be agendized and that we'll have more time, but I think it is a very important topic to spend this time on and without uh you know covering too much ground that we'll eventually cover i do have a question chief about um you know when and whether and how this unified command center is constructed um you know i think it's beside the point i guess commissioner walker and, and other people have uh, have stated before um, one of the challenges that the city has is coordination and and getting uh, all the cooks in the kitchen to do a specific task in communication with one another. And as we enter into this process with more cooks in the kitchen coming down from the state or from um, different entities, uh, I'd like to get a better sense of currently, given that San Francisco has a harm reduction policy, and, and kind of to uh, Commissioner Carter Overstone's point around, I've heard from community members also who uh, work in the field of, of providing, uh, you know, whether it's syringes or, or kits to clean, 
uh, of some enforcement, uh, you know, being or, or enforcement activities impacting those people, even when they haven't been using, right, just for having possession of these. So it's really uh, good to, to hear you state that, that our policy hasn't changed, that this is, that this approach is about active drug use on the streets. Um, but I think I mentioned this at our last meeting. I'd like to get a better sense of when you say that there is a form of engagement and that the expectation is that people will either move along or go into treatment because we're not going to incarcerate our way out of this, uh, you know, pet or, or issue of, of substance use. Do we currently have an actual MOU with the Department of Public Health? Uh, that details how some of these enforcement or deterrence activities can lead to actual linkage and engagement and treatment. Uh, no, that no, we don't. Not for not for that. Um, and I think to your point, Commissioner. I mean, the location of where we are or where this collaborative effort happens. I mean. Over time, yeah, that's important, but what's even what's more important is that we are communicating and that we are collaborating with each other. And you know, if we have a spontaneous incident and we have to spin up a, a unified command, we do it wherever we have to. And if that's you know at the corner of walk and don't walk, that's where we, we set that place up. So it's not the place. I mean, ultimately, you know, you, logistically, if this is a prolonged effort, we're going to have to have a place to work. But I think. What's really important right now is that we get all the people who need to be at the table at the table and we communicate. I don't care if we're working out of a closet, to be honest with you. We need to be communicating. And so that's going to be really important. And as far as the, the public health, uh, there is no MOU. And I, I believe as complicated as this issue is, you know, there's, there's no one entity that can think do this alone, whether it be public health or our community based organizations that, that have a, a part in this. I don't think any of us can do it al alone, but I do think we all have a little piece, and we all have to leverage our little piece of this to see if we can get to a better place. And I know that sounds high in the sky, but it's really not. It's the police department, do what you do, but do it thoughtfully and do it in conjunction with the bigger plan of we're trying to get people off the streets, you know, using drugs and dying on the streets, and we're trying to get people in to help for those that are addicted. For the drug dealers that are truly drug dealers, we're trying to get them off the streets too. And if, if, if you know, county jail until they have their day in court is the place where that needs to be, then so be it. But we just have to be, the police department, really focused on our work and bring the other people in to be focused on their work. And then somebody's got to be coordinating all this. And that's what the spirit behind all of, all of this is. And, and I believe I heard you mention earlier that, you know, the, the police department is one element of uh, a continuum of solutions, right? And um, I know that there is, a, a, you know, an opportunity when officers engage with people in the community um, to also be agents of change. And, and the more the department, I think, sets these agreements with whether it's community partners or city entities like DPH, and clarifies what our goals are when we are implementing some of these strategies, it, it goes a long way in addressing the issues in an intentional manner. And, and I think the more we set up our department officers uh, to not solely uh, focus on 
the arrest elements, uh, but this work that continues to come up, right? The deterrence, the deterrence, the presence of officers is a deterrence itself sometimes. And, and I think as uh, President Elias was mentioning earlier, it's like, how do we make sure that the officers are going to do their job uh, in the manner that's expected of them? Um, especially when there are more players in, in the field uh, doing different types of work. In addition to DPH, I know that there are more investments in community ambassadors. Is that conversation taking place or is, will that be a part of this unified command center process? Uh, as far as our, our, you know, the SFPD ambassadors, whatever the need is, it will happen through whoever we have as our representative in, that, in, this, in this collaborative team. Um, there are other city ambassadors that do different things. They don't have police radios. We have the welcome ambassadors. We have, you know, uh, other ambassadors. So if, if there's a need for that, which there might be, you know, Urban Alchemy is, is doing what, what they do in the Tenderloin and in other places, um, whatever entity that's responsible for that particular group of, of, of resources or ambassadors, that particular group of people, would have to bring that to bear, and if you know, the, if there's a collaborative decision or the unified command decision that hey, we've stabilized this block. Now, can ambassadors you know go out and do what they do and make you know make their part of the work uh, be brought to bear on, on this particular block? Then that is what would happen. They're not you know they're not going to replace you know the police officers to do the police part of the work, but Part of it is stabilizing some of these blocks and then holding that ground as best we can. And it's really hard to do that with officers because as has been said tonight in this hearing, we're at one block and they go to the next block and or they just wait until the shift changes or whatever. I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. So I've been out there enough to see this with my own eyes. They just wait us out. And so we got it. We have to stabilize these these blocks and on both sides of you know, the, the drug market equation. And I do think there is a, a use for uh, non-police services once we get areas stable, but we gotta get through these areas stable. And then uh, and the engagement from our service providers for the people on the streets, you know, I'd like to see more of that in, on nights and weekends, honestly. You know, we, we gotta have people out there doing that engagement work in these hours that we are talking about. It can't be just the police department at, at you know, 10 o'clock at night. You know, we're, you know, the service providers gotta be out there doing that work. So to help lift some of this, this work so we can make this situation better. So all those and things I, I think need to happen. I'm really happy that you mentioned that collaboration with service providers, uh, because it is important, obviously, they build a different type of relationship with uh, members of the community. And, and to that last point, I would like to get a better sense of, um, it, it, it was mentioned a couple of times today as a result of a, a story in the paper that of the 25 people, you know, up until yesterday, I guess, that had been arrested, none of them had accepted services. Um, and I remember asking this question a few months back um, and getting the response from the department that as a result of HIPAA, we couldn't necessarily track uh, what the outcome of referrals and linkages were. How is it that we were able to obtain that information in this instance, and how can we continue uh, to collect that information as we move forward as part of our standard practices? 
Well, where we are now and what we're trying to do as a part of this, this work is get aggregate data. I mean, uh, public health and our health providers have been very clear that they will not provide individual data to us. Uh, that is protected information, but aggregate data uh, is where we are now, and they are willing to provide that. So I think even that is helpful, just to have an idea for the questions that are asked, you know, out of the universe of people that uh, we've come in contact with or, or arrested, more specifically, how many people have accepted services. So they are willing to do that aggregate data. It, it's not any protected information in terms of individual uh, health information. But that aggregate data, I think, is also helpful. And I'm hopeful that as this goes on, it won't be zeros. You know, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful and that it won't be zeros as this goes on. I'm really glad that you mentioned that data point. It's very important, right? Because without measuring um, the impact of our efforts um, on some of these very tangible outcomes, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're shooting without necessarily having the goal in mind. And I, I really like that uh, you are looking at that data and, and at those outcomes so that we can determine where we're going to invest our resources. Thank you very much. And I know we're going to have a, a longer conversation about this uh, once it's agenda, once it's agendized. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Sergeant. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item five, please approach the podium. Good evening again. I'm going to play the, um, the rest of the two minutes of the video. Answer us and show us. We've seen hard times before. We needed to rely on each other. We turn to the church when services or programs have been too few or inadequate. Let me say this, the thing that we are we and in the church, we speak out and tell our story. I am a mother who lost four children. My son was murdered December 7, 2005, along with Sherelle's son, My Christian. Son. Maurice was killed. Uh, was killed. Oh, that's my grandson, Nick. On September 9, 2004, we started the Healing Circle for the Soul Support Group. Nowhere you could go where people understood what you're going through. We met upstairs in Paradise Baptist Church to share our feelings of loss, sadness, anger, and frustration. Three weeks ago, Wednesday. And I'm here because I have family members and friends that don't understand. All of us know about the moments. Driving down the street, Sun is shining, radio playing, you feeling good, and all of a sudden, bam, out of nowhere, that vision, that voice, that look, that laughter, that moment, and all of a sudden, you've got transformed back into that first shock. And you start the whole day over again. Survivors came from all over to tell their stories, and by speaking out, we began to process the trauma and support one another. Shot. 17 of those bullets went into him. He just received his diploma. He should have been walking across that stage, but I did. Every day is different for me. You know, at least I'm not crying 20,000 times a day. It's only 100 times. The street, though, they know. The people on the street know who's killing my children, and they won't. 
Thank you. And I hope that um, someone's gonna they, um, do something about these unsolved homicides and hire someone to do something. Thank you. And for members of the public, one announcement, we are removing line item eight, the presentation of the disciplinary review board from the agenda and line item 10 will be heard before line item nine. Line item six, DPA director's report, discussion, report on recent DPA activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Director Rosenstein. Good evening. Good evening. Can you believe I volunteered to be here? Well, you know, we, we have a lot of fans. I have some life choices to think about. Um, <laughs> good evening, everyone. My name is Diana Rosenstein. I'm here on behalf of executive director uh, Paul Henderson uh, to present the this week's statistics for the Department of Police Accountability. Um, we are pretty much at the same level uh, of cases open and cases closed as we were a year ago. Um, we have closed more cases. Um, we have pretty much the same number pending, 263 versus 265 last year. Um, the number of cases uh, that have been sustained, which means where uh, an officer or multiple officers have uh, been found uh, to have committed misconduct, is uh, down. We currently are at 28 as opposed to uh, 32. Um, still not a significant difference. Um, we have mediated uh, roughly the same number of cases, um, 10 so far this year. Last year we were at eight, and we currently have 24 cases uh, past the 270-day mark that is um, bestowed upon us by the charter, and uh, 20 of those cases are told, which means there is a reason why we cannot move forward uh, with our investigation. Currently we have six pending cases uh, with the commission and 89 pending with the chief. Uh, last week, the num we received 14 different complaints. Um, the majority, 24%, had to do with officers behaving or speaking inappropriately. Again, these are allegations that we will be investigating. These are not the results of uh, an investigated case. The second place allegation, there's a three-way tie. Officers failed to take required action. Officers displayed threatening, intimidating, or harassing behavior and officers drove inappropriately. Uh, in terms of operations, um, C Commissioner Yanez, I hope you're still on. You'll be happy to know that we did speak to our operations manager, uh, Nicole Armstrong, and she is presently engaged in developing an enhanced edition of a disciplinary study which will encompass uh, years 2019 to 2020. It will include the DPA's, and it'll be included uh, in, in the DPA's annual report. It is, the, the report is currently undergoing a peer review process uh, internally. Um, in terms of outreach, we are asking for, the, for any information from the public about uh, the recent officer-involved shooting. We are currently investigating that. Uh, otherwise, I don't have much to report on the outreach um, side. Uh, in terms of audit, um, our award-winning auditor is here, and he will be presenting um, 
the key issues reports on the discipline audit shortly. We have no uh, session, we have no cases in closed session, thank God. Um, and our senior investigator today uh, that is present with us and can answer any questions that anybody may have uh, is Steve Ball. You can always contact us as, uh, uh, online or um, give us a call at 415-241-7711. Uh, trying to keep it short and sweet. I will have some additional um, information to discuss with you um, uh, regarding the other agenda items, even though you stole my thunder with uh, my discussion that was supposed to be the reason why I was here, which was um, agenda item number eight. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we love having you in any event. Um, did you say there were 89 chiefs hearings? Did I hear that right? Yes. Okay. No, there are cases pending with the chief, not chiefs hearings. Oh, okay. That, they're in different stages. Got it. Some can be awaiting the, for the chief to decide whether he agrees with us or not. Some can be awaiting chiefs hearings. Some were awaiting the final discipline letter, possibly. Got so. it. Got it. Well, you did such a thorough job. No one has questions for you. Look at that. Sergeant. For members of the public who would like to make public comment regarding line item six, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item seven, commission reports, discussion and possible action. Commission reports will be limited to a brief description of activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Commission president's report, commissioner's reports, and commission announcements and schedule of items identified for consideration at a future commission meeting. Thank you. So Chief, I just want to be clear. I'm going to ask to agendize next week. It was supposed to be on this week, but we had um, some logistical issues. but. Um, next week, the department to report on the CHP and National Guard efforts. I think we need more information and a finite plan. When you, it was initially introduced, we didn't get the specifics and it was unclear. So I think we need to be transparent in what this program is going to do and what the sort of goals are. Um, I'd also like the numbers in terms of the number of arrests um, and any tracking data. I'd also like you to include the open air drug arrest effort. Uh, that we discussed uh, earlier today. And I think that I outlined some of the issues that I think uh, we should address, which is um, the numbers, um, the data. But more importantly, I think an, another area that needs to be addressed when it comes to the open air drug uh, use initiative is um, the effect or um, the plan that the department has to inform officers uh, in terms of what the goal of this initiative is, because I uh, want worry that given the morale when officers are asked to arrest people and uh, these arrests aren't leading anywhere because of a clogged court system and other factors what that does to officers and how they perform their work because we've seen this before and we've heard complaints about you know how it does affect their morale and ability to do their job when they see nothing happening on the back end um, so I think that's also an area that you should probably report on um, and what message we're sending to the officers in terms of being clear as to why these initiatives are happening and what we expect from them. If I may, as far as the, the statistics, so definitely we'll happily report all of our statistics. As far as the CHP, um, they have communicated to us that uh, they have to get approval from the governor's office and they will release statistics and that's what we're waiting on. So I will be able to get, because they want to put out 
official statistics. So their processes, they have to get the approval through governor's office. So as soon as we get that, definitely I'm, I'm more than happy to report it. Great. But I just and want to flag that for you that I can't get them until they release them. Okay. okay. I think too, it'll be clear because I've walked through the Tenderloin. I've seen uh, actual CHP officers on foot arresting people and I thought it was just in cars. So I think if we can get some clarity um, on that or, or what's happening um, and how many sort of patrol cars and sectors and the hours of operation, I think, you know, just so that we're more transparent with what this program really is. Yeah, definitely. And just to reiterate what I said initially, uh, traffic enforcement and general crime. So they, they can make arrests and, okay. and, they, and they have, so. Great. All right. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, President Elias. Um, most of my commission report is related to just writing things to the commission. Um, so we have a resolution that I asked to be agendized next week. Um, uh, re reiterating uh, the commission's support for the Compassion Alternative Response Team, or CART. We had a tremendous presentation from CART that was uh, provided in April uh, in 2020. Not only did this, com did this commission unanimously support CART, we kicked off the process that, that led to the creation of, of the CART coalition entirely. Um, and so that resolution um, asked to be agendized um, for our meeting next week. I know there are many excited members of the CART Coalition and the community that plan to, to, to support that resolution and very, very excited to have that. Um, also uh, assisted in revisions for the resolution regarding bureau orders, which we'll get to at item 11, so I won't elaborate on that here. Uh, I would ask President Elias for, uh, I think as the chief noted, it can be difficult uh, when it comes to the National Guard and CHP presence to, since he can't speak for any agencies other than himself. And so I'd ask that, um, uh, that the president send a written invitation on behalf of the commission uh, to um, representatives from the CHP and the National Guard to voluntarily uh, accept, hopefully accept our invitation to also provide an update. Um, either at next week's meeting if they're able to make that or if there are other layers of approval need to happen, I'm sure we can make time to have them later in the summer, but I think it's important that uh, we offer them that opportunity because I think uh, there is a significant public interest so that uh, I ask the representative of the, of the California National Guard and CHP be invited to present to this commission on that um, so we can speak to them directly. Great, I'll circle back with the chief to get contact information and we'll work on that. Vice President Carter Oberstone. Uh, just a couple updates for me. Um, I had the pleasure of speaking with the League of Women Voters uh, last week who invited me to attend their meeting to discuss our pretext policy. Um, I also met with the Treatment on Demand Coalition. Um, and I believe we had two working group meetings, at least one if not two working group meetings since the last commission meeting for DGO 810 uh, First Amendment surveillance activities. We've got one remaining on, I'm sorry, two remaining on the books, and uh, we, we may add some additional ones, uh, additional meetings because of uh, interest from, from the community. So looking forward to pressing ahead on that policy. Thank you. Chief? Oh, you're, you already allowed me to speak. Sorry okay. about that. Just in case. Okay, <laughs> Commissioner Walker. Thank you, President Elias. Um, I attended the last graduation. I think that that was after, after our last meeting. Um, there were nine wonderful candidates 
that's the good news that graduated and the bad news is there were only nine, <laughs> nine graduates. So uh, one of the issues I know that I am working on um, with uh, interim deputy director Flaherty, I have to get that, is that the right? Acting chief, excuse me. Yes. Um, is, is recruiting more women, so we're working, um, we're having another follow-up meeting with um, Kimberly Ellis, who runs the Commission on the Status of Women, and Supervisor Melgar, who's committed um, to working to get more women recruits. So um, I'm fully committed to 3030. Actually, I, I brag that we are now accelerating to 50 by 29. <laughs> you got to work on those numbers. I know, I know. You need a better call tag. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, I think so. <laughs> um, so, um, um, uh, Lazar and several um, staff folks um, are working, um, having more conversations, just getting up to speed on the patrol specials, the current status, as well as... Um, you know, how that might work um, as a tool for ongoing policing uh, collaborations. Uh, the private sector is out there and, you know, it's, um, it's really important that we um, collaborate well, provide oversight, uh, make sure that we're, you know, getting what we need as far as information about how things are going out there. And this, this ties into the, um, the CART review um, with the new um, DEM um, presentation about um, the heart response, which I think includes the CART request, I'm not sure. Um, it just, it would be really important to maybe sort of check in to see if we should be looking at that at the same time as a review of CART. Um, again, you know, words are wonderful, but action is what really actually makes a difference. So. I'm really, I, I think that we're in good, I, I think that there's a lot of good things happening in the city and the, the ability to bring them together and sort of make sure we have a proper response is crucial. So I'm really appreciative of our, of our um, chief being involved in the conversations around all that. I think that's, that's kind of what I'm seeing is that there are really good programs that are being enacted and, and the key is making sure we have the right people responding and places to take people. So. Um, I'm, I'm involved in some of those conversations with the different groups that are out there. So um, I think that's all I want to report now. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Yee. Thank you very much there, um, President Cindy Elias. Uh, just like um, Commissioner uh, Deborah Walker, I attended uh, graduation. But more importantly, seeing the class president uh, being a woman, Kaylee uh, Takashita. So that's, that was great to see, and her going back to her, um, looks like Norton, which is part of Japantown, so great to, for her to come back. Also attend the ice cream with a cop. That was, I was invited by one of the community members, David Heller. It was given by the Richmond uh, uh, community, Joe's Ice Cream, and SF Safe. So it was a great event. The community came out. Um, Oh, it was a party on Gary, uh, thereabouts. So, uh, get the feeling for the community that you know it, it, we're back. Hopefully, uh, continue on on our quest to um, 
bring our city back live. Uh, also, May 20, uh, that was on May 26th. May 31st, I attended, um, I guess, the newly elected um, Asian police officer president, uh, Cobra Chiu, was given by the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association and also Be China. Uh, they wanted to acknowledge all of his hard work he's done in the community, so that was a great event. We also had our chief to come in and drop by, say a few words, and thank our members for all their commitment. Um, I guess to the safety with respect. Uh, on June uh, today, I went up to visit Northern Station to meet up with uh, Captain Derek uh, Jackson. Um, he was in a meeting with the Fillmore community. They're planning the Fillmore Festival. So he signed me to his uh, lieutenant. I think his name is Lieutenant Corin um, uh, Harris. So he showed me around, and, and I got to meet and talk with the supervisor, and they told me some of the concerns. And maybe uh, one of these days I'll share with the chief, and we can bring him back on the line item stuff to talk about. But. Um, Told the members, say hey, we thank you very much for keeping us safe and continue their hard work. As you know, Norton covers uh, the Tenderloin, City Hall, um, Japantown, and all the way to uh, Marina Kalahari. So they have a tough task, and many of them uh, enjoy serving that area. So that ends my report, President. Thank you, Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, President Elias. Um, I have a short report. I um, have been following up with some of the partners uh, that are interested in advancing the pre-booking for juveniles, uh, pre-diversion booking program, or pre-booking diversion program, sorry. Um, and that is, uh, we're making headway in identifying what some of the potential challenges could be. I know that President Elias uh, wants to see a follow-up conversation at some point next month. I think she had indicated 60 days after last month's presentation. Um, so we're trying to figure out what the best uh, what the best format and how to support the department's efforts in uh, creating a pre-booking diversion uh, program. So uh, meetings with the Community Assessment and Referral Center and uh, with President Margaret Brotkin over there at the Juvenile Probation uh, Commission. Um, so that work is still taking place, and we hope to be able to present something more formal next month as far as what our recommendations are and possibly a resolution for how we could support the department in advancing this project. Um, and I do want to give a shout out. Uh, I was at Carnival a couple of weekends ago. And uh, it was just a really beautiful community building event. Uh, I saw, you know, the department personnel and officers uh, both working the event, supporting with crowd control, doing outreach. And, and I have to say, I was really pleased with what I saw, at least, and especially with one incident where there was some true poli community policing taking place, an incident at uh, the O'Connell lowrider show area, you know, I think could have potentially led to an escalation that, that you know, could have created an unsafe um, 
situation there, but some community members, uh, you know, contained it. I saw department personnel stand back and allow community to address whatever issue was taking place. And I believe I even saw Sergeant Reynolds there uh, across the street in the uh, um, outreach booth there. And I just thought it was a really good demonstration of the partnership that uh, the police department has with the organizers of the carnival program and the respect for those uh, individuals that decided to contain and uh, and de-escalate a situation from, from going uh, out of control. So I thank everyone that was present that day. That whole weekend was a beautiful kind of, uh, you know, uh, a launching of uh, the mission. And the mission in the summer is it's all about carnival. So I really, really am grateful for everyone's effort. And I thank the chief for uh, making sure his staff, that the event was properly staffed. Thank you, Commissioner Byrne. Uh, thank you, President. Thank you, President Elias. Um, uh, just a couple things I, I'd like to commend Commissioner Benedicto. He gave a wonderful speech at the uh, at the last uh, Police Academy graduation. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, President Elias for agendizing the uh, Tenderloin for next week. Uh, during the break, um, I was contacted by. Uh, a member of the administration at UC uh, San Francisco Law School, formerly Hastings, uh, that uh, wants to send representatives uh, uh, to uh, to this item to speak about uh, the, their personal experience. And, and finally, Chief, um, I know that uh, you have no jurisdiction over the California Highway Patrol, but you do have a good relationship with the San Francisco District Attorney. So I would assume that when the uh, CHP makes arrests, uh, they turn a file over uh, to the San Francisco District Attorney. So I would ask that uh, the department contact the District Attorney's Office so we can see just how many arrests, uh, uh, at least from the District Attorney's statistics, how many arrests were uh, turned in. They should be able to uh, uh, give you that information, Chief. Great point. Uh, that, um, yeah, and they can give you the ones they declined as well. Um, thank you. Thank you. Sergeant? For members of the public that would, like, that would like to make public comment regarding line item seven, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item 10, DPA discussion and presentation on key issue report, SFPD's handling of officer discipline discussion. Hello, welcome. I would like to introduce Steve Flaherty, award-winning auditor from the San Francisco Department of Police Accountability. Excuse me, isn't it like twice award-winning or three Multi times? Multi. Thank you. Award-winning auditor. Don't sell your staff short. Multi is much better. Welcome, welcome back. Thank you, good evening. Um, good evening, President Elias, Vice President Carter Oberstone, Commissioners Chief Scott and members of the public. Steve Flaherty, Director of Audits for the Department of Police Accountability. Tonight, I'm gonna to be presenting on DPA's key issue report on SFPD's handling of officer discipline. We issued this report on May 3rd. Uh, this report is part of our ongoing audit of SFPD's handling of officer misconduct. This is the third key issue report that we've issued as part of this audit. The first report uh, was on SFPD's public reporting on officer misconduct and discipline, which was issued in November of 2022. 
The second key issue report was on the department's monitoring of department communications for bias, and that was issued in March 2023. We presented both of those reports to you and the public in November 2022 and May 2023, respectively. Next slide, please. Uh, so just by way of quick recap on why we did this report, the San Francisco Charter requires that DPA regularly audit SFPD's handling of officer misconduct. As part of this audit, we're looking at how the police department handles officer discipline. Prior to issuing uh, our reports, we provide drafts to the police department to review and bring to our attention any factual errors. Although not required, we also provide the police department with an opportunity to provide its views and perspectives concerning the issues in these key issue reports. The intention of the key issue reports is to bring to the police commission and police department's attention matters needing attention so that any corrective action can occur before the full report is issued. Next slide, please. Uh, so at a high level, there's two key issues that we're gonna discuss tonight. Issue number one concerns the police department's holding of discipline in abeyance without documented criteria on when this is appropriate. Issue number two concerns the police department's lack of timeframes for resolving appeals of intended disciplinary actions issued by the chief. So in key issue number one, we found that the police department does not have written criteria for when it's appropriate to hold discipline in abeyance. The police department told us that this uh, abeyance period is like a quote probation term where the discipline is only imposed if the officer has further misconduct and that it considers abeyance on a case by case basis. However, these explanations are not found in any police department documentation. We examined police department discipline data for the period of 2019 to 2021 during this period, the police department suspended 126 officers. The police department held suspensions for 14 of these officers or 11% in, in abeyance. The use of abeyance is a risk. The United States Department of Justice cautions that when used unwisely, the habitual suspension of sentences can introduce excessive deal-making and introduce arbitrariness into a disciplinary system. Next slide, please. So although the police department does not have guidance on when it can hold discipline in advance, other jurisdictions do. Our interim report includes examples of criteria set by two other law enforcement agencies. The Albuquerque Police Department defines abeyance as a temporary hold on part of a suspension to be served for a sustained policy violation. The Albuquerque Police Department policy states they can hold no more than 25% of a suspension in advance and for no more than six months. The image on this slide shows the Albuquerque Police Department's criteria on when abeyance is appropriate. Factors that Albuquerque considers include the officers accepting responsibility for their actions, the officers' prior offenses, and whether further offenses are likely to occur. Another example in our report is of the San Diego Police Department. They offer a lower level of discipline if an officer accepts a, quote, last chance agreement, where the more severe discipline is put in abeyance if the officer does not violate the agreement. Uh, an example that we provide in the report is termination for a first time alcohol related misconduct, which can be, can be converted into a five day suspension with a last chance agreement. And the abeyance was put in, the, sorry, the termination is put in abeyance for five years. Next slide, please. Uh, for key issue number two, we found out the police department's process for resolving appeals of the chief's intended discipline does not include completion timeframes. Just by way of quick background, and I apologize if this is gonna cover what uh, the other presentation on the disciplinary hearing tonight is going to cover as well. 
Chief's hearings are discussed in Department General Order 2.07, which is the department's discipline process for sworn officers. When a police officer accused of misconduct is notified of their intended punishment, they're given an opportunity to request a hearing before the chief to appeal this decision. Although DGO 2.07 requires officers to request a hearing within 10 days of receiving this intended discipline, it does not establish timeframes for when this hearing must take place or when the appeal should be resolved. The police department stated that it aims to hold chief's hearings within six to eight months, but that delays happen due to scheduling conflicts and the availability of the accused member. We analyzed data for DPA-initiated investigations and found that over half of them, 28 of 51 or 55% of the hearings related to these cases were pending for more than a year. The aging of DPA investigated misconduct pending a chief's hearing is shown in the graphic on this slide. The United States Department of Justice uh, has issued guidance which states that an effective disciplinary process must be timely and have established completion deadlines. Appeals can increase the time to resolve cases and the impact of discipline on the officer and the messages to the department and the community can be severely compromised the longer it takes from the time the misconduct occurred to its resolution. Uh, in the issue, key issue report, we have examples of two other California law enforcement agencies that have specific timeframes for their administrative appeals processes. Um, these law enforcement agencies are the City of Los Angeles and their police department and the Long Beach Police Department. Uh, for example, the Long Beach Police Department has established a time frame for the appeals of written reprimands. The Long Beach Police Department's process requires that the chief of police or their designee meet with officers within 10 working days of receiving an appeal and make a, a written decision within 30 days. Uh, so real quickly, just want to talk about some opportunities that exist when addressing these issues. Addressing the issues raised in this report provide the police department with opportunities to create a more transparent, consistent, and efficient discipline process. Establishing a clear, documented guidance on when abeyance is appropriate may help the police department show that abeyance is offered to members consistently and equitably without consideration of factors like their race, gender, rank, or assignment. The amount of time between when misconduct occurs to the imposition of sanctions can comprise the message to the community and affect employees' fairness uh, sorry, opinions on fairness. Setting timeframes for resolving appeals of discipline may help the police department avoid these risks and ensure a fair and efficient discipline process. Uh, so just in closing, I, I want to briefly discuss next steps. Uh, it's our goal to try and get a draft of the full audit reports to the police department in June. The full report will combine the information that I presented to you in the key issue reports as well as contain some new analysis on SFPD's bias policies and the police department's discipline case management system. The full report will provide the department and the police commission with specific recommendations to address our audit findings. This concludes my presentation. Happy to answer any questions you have about our report. Thank you, Executive uh, Acting Director Rosenstein. Thank you. I just wanted to follow up um, and be completely frank. Uh, I think that this is evidence of the fact that the, um, our system of trying to, uh, to implement abeyance uh, discipline is not working. Um, and uh, it is also bleeding over into the other key issue, which is setting uh, reasonable timeframes uh, during which the uh, disciplinary matters that are at the chief's level can be conducted. Um, we at the DPA strongly urge uh, the commission to um, 
to think of other solutions other than using um, abeyance type discipline for several reasons. First, um, because I think that it was started in, in good faith and there are some, um, some benefits to it, but I think that the uh, detriments outweigh the benefits because we don't have the infrastructure uh, in place to truly uh, uh, implement abeyance in an unbiased, un, uh, non-arbitrary way. Um, the way it works in criminal cases, since this is a system that was based on the criminal uh, arena, is that when a person admits guilt and is put on probation, um, the, and then during their probation period, they are arrested for a new case, um, they, that is considered a violation of probation. But when that happens, they are also entitled to a separate hearing, not just on the new case, but on the probation violation. And the district attorney can elect to move forward on both or just one. Um, we don't have the infrastructure to do that here. We are struggling with uh, having chief's hearings in a timely manner, which are the hearings that officers are entitled to on the base level, let alone any type of infrastructure that is going to allow us to also provide officers with some type of hearing um, on the cases that are held in abeyance because um, there is no criteria right now and I don't think that we can come up with um, criteria that, that satisfies the due process requirements for um, issuing the uh, time that is held in abeyance against officers if they pick up a new discipline matter. Um, because the, the question is, let's say in, in a criminal case, um, the underlying case, you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. There's a different burden of proof for a probation violation, right? It's preponderance of the evidence. So what is the burden of proof on for example, DPA on the Internal Affairs Department to prove the underlying case that triggers the abeyance. We don't have that. That's not discussed. Um, that would be something that would be required. Another hearing would mo most likely be required in order to ensure that POBRA rights are, um, are adhered to. Uh, so because of, uh, the other layer is what if the abeyance was issued by the commission but the underlying case is only chief's level discipline. Does the commission hear the abeyance uh, revocation, so to speak, or does the chief get to make that decision? So because the, it is a complicated issue, um, and we're just wrapping our head around the basics, which is trying to get the chief's hearings done in a timely manner, at this point, um, we recommend that we move forward um, in terms of the, the, our discipline structure, without the use of abeyance. Um, if, and I'm happy to answer any practical questions about that. Uh, I will say that the key issue number two that has been brought up by our award-winning auditor um, has largely been resolved by uh, the conversations and the uh, revision of Department General Order 2.07 that has occurred with the help of Janelle Kaywood and Stephen Betts. Uh, from the legal department at San Francisco Police Department. Um, we've got a draft ready. We've got time frames ready, but it was pulled back because this abeyance issue is still out there and we cannot, uh, I think we as DPA, SFPD, and the commission uh, have to make a decision 
about whether we continue on this path of using it, and if so, where it's supposed to live. Is it supposed to live in 2.07? Is it supposed to live in the discipline matrix? Is it supposed to live in a resolution? So um, those are a lot, that, that's a lot of work for very little benefit. So at this point, we respectfully request that we refrain from the use of abeyance in future um, discipline matters. Uh, the basis for the use of abeyance thus far has been where um, there are factors in mitigation. If there are factors in mitigation, then the officer's discipline should be less rather than using abeyance. Um, so um, that would be our recommendation at this point. If we want to discuss creating infrastructure for um, implementing this, um, I think we can do that, but for now, it, we strongly recommend moving forward with the 2.07 to get the chief's hearings under control. And when you say the um, request to not issue abeyance, is that for police commission cases as well as chief, the chief's cases? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know that we have been, or I have been in discussion with the commission office, DPA, as well as supervising attorney, Ashley Warsham, and this is an issue that has come up and we are currently working it out and addressing it. So hopefully we'll have some more guidance um, once we get something to on paper, we're close. And then I think Chief, you and I will have a discussion and then we can um, lay it out or, or address some of these concerns. I will say that it does, sorry, I, I promise. One last, um, one last point. I do think that it has a place in negotiated dispositions, because in a negotiated disposition, in other words, a settlement, um, the officer agree can agree in response to getting a certain level of discipline uh, to give up certain rights, and the uh, the abeyance criteria can be easily spelled out in a settlement and can be then easily implemented. The problem is when it is used as a tool of punishment uh, by either the commission or the chief, um, and there is no criteria of how it gets triggered, when it gets triggered, what the burden of proof is, and who makes that decision. Um, that's where the, the problems lie. So in a negotiated disposition, DPA's position is that it is a useful tool, but aside from that, at this point, at this juncture, um, it's not a, a great tool to move forward with, and it's holding back uh, our ability to move forward on 2.07. Great, thank you. It is on the chief and my radar. It's been for some time, so I think we'll definitely have an update soon, but thank you for pointing it out. My second question is on slide six. Um, so we talk about the number of hearings, and you say it's 51, and then earlier you said cases were 89. Um, and I know that they mean different things, so maybe if you can clarify that, because then when I look at the, the department's presentation on chief's hearings, they have another number, um, which is different than your number. Uh, theirs is uh, on page uh, two of theirs, it's 66, and you have 51, so. Yeah, I might be able to speak to that. I think yeah. it might be a, a timing issue um, on the slide. Uh, on the bottom of the table there, it says that uh, our analysis was as of April oh, 2022. April? So, I, I, okay. Yeah. So then we could probably rely on the Department 66 number? It would probably be more current than a, that April 2022 number, okay. but yeah. But then why, what's the difference between the 89 and the 66 number then? So 89 represents the number of cases that have left our office are, and are with uh, the uh, 
uh, risk management office or with the chief. So that includes cases that we've sent over where we recommend discipline. That includes cases that um, where uh, the chief has already agreed with us, issued a notice of intent to discipline, and, uh, and we are waiting for the officers to decide whether or not they want a chief's hearing. That includes cases that are currently awaiting a chief's hearing, and that also includes cases where the chief's hearing has been conducted and we are waiting for the chief's final decision. So it, is, it, it literally is the number of cases that left DPA, are with SFPD that are not completely closed. Okay, and then the number of chief's hearings are the actual hearings that members go through for the chief to impose discipline. Correct, so that, that represents the number of cases where the chief has issued a notice of intent to di discipline to the officer, right. okay. has given the officer an opportunity to uh, request a hearing, the officer has requested a hearing, and we are waiting to schedule that hearing. Thank you for the clarification. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, President Elias. One, uh, I'd like to thank um, Mr. Flaherty and DPA for this report. I think, you know, it's been said before, obviously, our, our multi-award winning audit, but that it, it really is, uh, for anyone who's been following the commission long, uh, a huge change to see uh, the, the quality, but also just the, the digestibility of these audits, the shift to the key issue reports, both uh, in presentations has really allowed us to have what we're having, which is a focused discussion on these key issues, whereas what sometimes in the past you'd get a book-length report and it would be agendized on one item and it would just be a surface-level discussion about multiple recommendations, which was not efficient. And I think this is definitely efficient for members of the public. I strongly encourage you to look at these key issue reports. They're tremendously readable, they're well-formatted, and you can get a lot of information about that oversight. Um, one question I had was this number of 14 suspensions held in abeyance. So that includes abeyance through any means. So chiefs abeyance, uh, negotiated dispositions, and commission? It does not include commission cases, just police department. Okay. Oh. So the number, um, if there's a way to determine the commission abeyance, um, that, that can just be a written update. I, th I think that'd be helpful for us to get a full scope of what this, of what this looks like. Um, I think that Acting Director Rosenstein raises a good point that without criteria it is uh, it's a very confusing place right now and that you don't want it to hold up 2.07, but it's not the case that it's unworkable, right? If there were clear criteria on the points that you stated, it, it could be an effective tool, you think, Director? I do, but I think that we need to have written criteria. We need to decide where, because the written criteria is also gonna have to live in multiple places. Um, so there are multiple revisions to not just DGOs, but the trial rules, um, mm -hmm. DGOs, and uh, the discipline matrix. Uh, I also think that just like uh, our uh, uh, attempt to get a hold of chief's hearings, we're gonna need to create some type of infrastructure where these are swift and certain. Because the bottom line is that this, you know, the studies after study after study has shown that for discipline to be effective, it has to be commensurate with the level of misconduct and it has to be swift and it has to be certain. Um, and none of those things are happening right now, unfortunately. I think I, I had a, a brief conversation with the chief. I think wherever it lives, because I think it does need to live somewhere, we want to make sure that it's, it lives somewhere commission adopted, that the public are able to comment on it. 
And I also think that I know that DPA does not audit the commission, but I think that it's important that whatever the abeyance criteria are, they are also written for when the commission decides to impose abeyance, and presumably they'd be the same. I, I think both the department and the commission, for purposes of, of due process officers facing discipline, uh, should have standards that are clear and are, and are govern the commission and, and, and the chief. So I think whenever we undertake this process, I'm glad to hear the president Elias and the chief are on it. I think we want to make sure that it applies equally to, to the commission as well. I think that... Um, We've done that. That's our intention. So it'll be it'll be a set criteria for both instances. And then that makes sense. I, I think that the Albuquerque Police Department is a good is a, a really good model from everything I've seen. Um, I know that we've also used some of their materials in the body worn camera working group. Uh, one reason for that for and members of the public is that, is that the Albuquerque Police Department is under a federal consent decree. And after checking with Director Policy, uh, DPAK would they even have a federal monitor. And so it means that policies promulgated in Albuquerque are, are done with the strictest scrutiny of the U.S. Department of Justice and the most exacting standards that represent the best practices. So I think that it's a good model to look at. Um, you know, there's an excerpt of it here, uh, I know, in the Keisha report, but I think we should look closely at Albuquerque because they're under that, under that consent decree. That's, thank you. Vice President Carter Overstone. Thank you for the report, Director Flaherty. Um, Right, so actually my first question is going to be, you're, you're director of audits, right? Correct. Okay, I was just questioned here, but just wanted to confirm. Okay, um, so, um, so I was going to ask a question that Commissioner Benedicto asked about the data set for issue number one. So you're not looking at commission-instituted abeyances. And I guess my question is with that, is there any concern that that will skew the results in the sense that the abeyance behavior would be, we would expect it to be substantially different for commission cases because commission cases involve generally higher penalties or potential pen penalties. And so you would just observe different, you know, usage of abeyance in that context. And so whatever we take away from this wouldn't necessarily apply to what the commission is doing. Um, I can't speak to that just because I haven't, you know, as part of this audit that the commission's rationale for holding or for issuing discipline was not part of the scope of our audit. Right. Okay. Um, and another just basic kind of background question is this includes obviously settlements, as you've said, and then is there, is there a widespread use or common use of abeyance as part of the initial charging document or, or not? I can speak to that. Um, I don't think that there's uh, ever abeyance used in an initial charging document that okay. I'm aware of. And I can just say for the purposes of this report, we just looked at the outcome of the discipline. So I, yeah, we can't speak to what initially was proposed. Okay. Practically speaking, what happens is once we have a, a new case, let's say, um, where we are about to recommend discipline, we contact um, our counterpart um, uh, at Risk at the risk management office to find out whether that particular office officer has any outstanding um, or prior uh, misconduct allegations within the last seven years. And as a result, we usually we will find out the officer has X, Y, Z. One of the things that we find out is, oh, the, in this last case, the officer had 
um, discipline that's held in abeyance. And so at that point, we take that into consideration when making the recommendation um, to the chief. Uh, in specific cases that I've seen, then, and we have met and conferred with the chief, um, you know, then we have to make this decision of, okay, how do we deal with this? Is this enough? Are we in agreement, et cetera? And I don't know of any cases where it has gone to the level where there's actually been a hearing. Great. Uh, thanks. That's helpful. Um, and then I just wanted to ask, are, is DPA endorsing the Albuquerque criteria, or is that more just exemplar, you know, an example? or Correct. No endorsement, just an example for your consideration. And, and it, will the eventual report propose criteria or, or not? No, it'll leave it at the discretion of the commission, the department, and other stakeholders. And is it within that, well, I guess, yeah, more broadly, is it within the purview of this audit to suggest how, like, how to establish criteria that will do a good job of constraining discretion? And I guess the reason I ask that is that this issue about abeyance is a symptom of a larger problem, which is that there's arbitrariness at all types of points within the discipline process, including the charging decision. And, you know, so I think, so I ask that because I think we could benefit from, from that in other places as well. Yeah, as part of the audit, you know, we'll point out where the opportunities to strengthen documentation and support for disciplinary decisions lies and um, to the extent possible, provide examples from other jurisdictions about, you know, how they're doing that in their processes. Okay. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Chief. Thank, thank you. And uh, thank you, Steve, for the director Flaherty for the audit. And uh, thank DPA for that. There are, in my opinion, some good recommendations in here. I just wanted to speak on a couple of things that uh, Ms. Rosenstein said. I, I have a slightly different point of view on some of that. I, I do think there's a place for abeyances, and I do think I agree that uh, codifying what that is, including the definition of abeyance, would be a huge step in the right direction. But I also want to point out some of what's good about abeyances. I mean, I know the commission's uh, abeyances aren't a part of this report, but there have been careers saved from abeyances and officers who have gone on to be very productive, uh, who has some serious discipline. And, and so let's not forget about what discipline, the purpose of discipline is to correct behavior. Yeah, there's a punishment element of discipline. Yes, there is, but the real purpose of discipline is to teach and correct behavior. And I do think that abeyances can play a role in that if done thoughtfully and consistently at the commission level and at the chief's level. The other thing I just want to point out, and I'll speak for chief's level discipline, and I know this audit didn't go to this level of detail, but we do, I do write exactly what the terms of abeyance are. And it's not triggered by the, the allegation of misconduct, it's triggered by sustained misconduct. So, and I'm pretty sure that the commission's instructions always are pretty uh, detailed. The ones that have been triggered, there has not been a question about whether or not it applies. And there have been some triggered. So I think it's a good idea to codify this. I think that's a great recommendation. I do think there's a place for this uh, in, in, in terms of procedural justice and really trying to make our discipline system fair. It has to be consistent. And I also agree with uh, Vice President Carter-Overstone. There's a certain degree of arbitrariness in the discipline system, period. Any discipline system, 
Albuquerque, L.A., all these departments that you look at. I worked L.A. I know there's a degree of arbitrariness in their system because every one of these cases is different. And it's almost impossible to say every case you're going to get this amount of punishment because there are so many factors that play into this. That's why we have a guideline to be within a ballpark. So I think these are definitely things that we can work at, but I would strongly advocate for uh, keeping abeyances as a part of our system, but codifying and having some rules and regulations for at least chiefs level discipline. And I totally agree with uh, Commissioner Benedicto's uh, thought process is it should be applied with every level of discipline in my opinion. But I do think there is a, a place for this. And, and, and not to mention, and this is not in your audit, how progressive discipline is impacted. Because the abeyances, I mean, the progressive discipline is triggered by not what was held in abeyance, but the discipline. So if that next case is you know, the same type that fits into this progressive uh, ballpark, then it's, it's the total amount of discipline whether or not abeyance was triggered that we start from. So it's important to address that issue as well. Thank you. Right, I agree. Um, and that those are things that we've discussed with, chief, with you, Chief, and things we've discussed with um, President Elias. Um, and yes, there have been situations where um, it has been very clear based on the disposition of a prior incident. What I'm concerned about is what if uh, let's say in the future a, an officer challenges uh, whether or not they're entitled to a hearing separate and apart on, on, on the abeyance issue alone. We don't, we don't even have criteria. What's the burden of proof? If, are, we in, are they entitled to a hearing? If so, what is the burden of proof? Who, who, who owns that burden? Because the procedural due process um, guidelines uh, established by Peace Officers Bill of Rights and the case law involved in this um, are clear about you know the fact specific circumstances of, a, of an incident what I'm concerned about is is whether or not that same level of uh, scrutiny can exists and can be adhered to um, from a legal perspective so that's where I'm coming from and if I could just come in on that, because I am familiar with some cases where the abeyance had language like any future discipline, you will be terminated. And those, the ones that I know about, were overturned because you do have a burden of proof for that future discipline. I think this is something different where a sustained allegation triggers a, a penalty that has already been adjudicated and agreed upon. and. I don't see where there is a burden of proof if that new discipline is sustained. The burden of proof is whether or not that new discipline is sustained and whether it's within that abeyance period. This is not a situation where we're saying your next one, you're going to get 20 days without a due process hearing, which some departments used to do that. I think that's right. what the burden of proof piece was. So I, I don't disagree. I think all this needs to be vetted thoroughly. but. Uh, those are the cases that I know about. Right, and I agree with you, but there's also the situations where, let's say, post-chief's hearings, people also have the right, to, officers have a right to an administrative appeal. So if they uh, issue a timely request for an administrative appeal, does the abeyance get held? Does it get imposed um, until after the administrative hearing? Or what about a writ? Yes. So there's that, a lot. Yes. There's that, a lot that's where the due process comes in. I mean, we can't do anything until the discipline is final. Right. So, I mean, that would apply anyway. We can't administer any penalty until that discipline is final. So that's where the due process would, 
would be a huge factor in this, and, and I think that's fair. Right. So well, I, yeah, no, and, and I, I think that when we, we need to fine-tune the language, like I said, it's on the radar. We're working with the city attorney's office, the department, DPA, so this, these are all issues that have come up, and we're being, we're sort of just weeding through them. Absolutely. Thank Stop. you. Right. Yeah. All right. Thank you, uh, Sergeant. For members of the public who would like to make public comment regarding line item 10, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item 9, discussion and presentation on Chief's disciplinary hearing process for cases with less than 10-day suspensions. Impacts and proposals at the request of the commission. Discussion. Hello. Good evening. You're like our favorite face here now. All right. So who do we have? The team's getting ready. Um, good evening, Commission President Elias, Vice President Carter Oberstone, Commissioners Chief Scott, uh, Acting Director Rosenstein, and the general public. So I'm Commander Paul Yep with the Risk Management Office, and with me are Lieutenant Angela Wilhelm, the officer in charge of the Internal Affairs Division, and Sergeant Craig Wells, also of the Internal Affairs Division. So tonight, we will be presenting the chief's hearing process. And to make this presentation slightly interactive, we're gonna start with slide nine. Nice. Okay. You're not doing pop quizzes at the end, are you? Okay, so slide nine, we hope to explain the chief's hearing document workflow. And before we get to the blue arrow, let me explain a few things. So prior to the blue arrow, a lot of work is done. So first, there's an allegation of a violation of policy or misconduct against an officer. Then we thoroughly invest, investigate that allegation, and it could take up to one year, but um, generally less than a year. And uh, we call that the 3304 date, so we may refer to that again. And then finally, if a complaint is sustained uh, that we believe the misconduct occurred, the chief of police makes a disciplined decision, and that's when we get to the blue arrow. So what happens when that determination is made is that the officer is noticed and a date is selected. So um, the case file is received from the chief's office. One of our attorneys drafts a notice of intent to discipline, or an, I guess it's annoyed, NOID. And professional staff pre-selects hearing dates. This is the current process. Then it moves, if the officer chooses to appeal the case, it moves to a case review. In that process, the IAD staff prepares a case file for discovery. And this is quite an extensive workload for the staff. All entities are noticed when discovery is ready, and the entities review the case and prepare for the hearing. Finally, when all the parties are agreeable to the date and they've reviewed all the discovery, we actually have the chief's hearing. Um, and that text just kind of explains what I just said. So, uh, as I said, it was interactive. I'm actually going to move the presentation to Lieutenant Wilhelm, and we're going to go back to slide two at this point. You want us to wait for, well, we'll I guess we'll ask questions at the end. So, going back to slide two, um, and just important to note, this is all data that we collected um, as of April 24th. Um, and why I say that is because these numbers fluctuate. So as the chief hears new cases, they're assigned to the attorneys, 
um, that number can go up and down. And then as we also have chiefs hearings, that will also impact the total number of cases that are pending a chief's hearing. And I just want to um, articulate that when we say that there are 124 cases pending, that's um, 124 officers. So um, each um, case could have multiple officers um, that um, may request a chief's hearing. So these are actually 124 of our members that are currently waiting chief's hearings. We have them broken down um, by year. Also, um, the types of cases, whether it's a DPA case or an internal affairs case. And I think as um, you guys had asked in the previous presentation, why the numbers are a little bit different. And as Steve Flaherty alluded to that um, as of April 24th, we actually have 66 uh, DPA cases that are pending. I, I do want to say that um, I had um, our senior clerk pull the um, cases that are currently set for a chief's hearing starting tomorrow through August 8th. In the next eight weeks, we have 24 hearings that are scheduled. So just to kind of give you an idea of um, what the calendar looks like in the ne next eight weeks, we do have 24 um, members that are scheduled for a chief's hearing. I think one of the questions that had come up was how many of these cases are officers that have multiple um, cases that are pending chief's hearings? And then again, as of the end of April, we have four officers of 124 that have um, multiple hearings pending. I just listed out the types of hearings that they have. And statistically speaking, this would be less than 1% of the total number of cases where we have officers that have maybe uh, multiple cases pending at a, the chief's hearing level. For some of the older cases that are pending a chief's hearing, um, we have 15 um, officers that um, are included in these 2018 and 2019 cases that are either DPA cases or IAD cases. Um, I think the important thing to note here on this slide is that even though a case, um, the complaint or the allegation may have come in in 2018 or in 2019, there are factors that would uh, toll the matter until the um, administrative clock starts. Some of these cases may have uh, included a criminal investigation or the member may have been unavailable. And so really what the important thing to look at is the third column the date that the chief actually reviewed the case and made a decision on the finding and the discipline, and that's what would then trigger um, the, the notice of intent to discipline being sent out, and then that process of a chief's hearing being set. Um, the, I'm sorry if you could go back the one side. I did wanna note for um, one of the 2018 cases, um, three of those officers are scheduled for hearings um, in the next eight weeks. So just so that you know, we're moving forward on some of these cases um, that are a little bit older. 
So just to give you kind of a little bit of a background as to how we got to um, the number of cases that are pending a chief's hearing, as all of you know, COVID, uh, COVID hit us all March of 2020. Um, it created kind of a significant backlog for us for a couple of reasons. One, uh, we kind of had to figure out uh, the process of chief's hearings and how to do that remotely. Um, another factor that came into play is um, we had uh, one of our staff members retire who was um, instrumental in scheduling the chief's hearings. And I'll get into later the um, partners that um, we have to work with when we schedule these hearings. Um, we really lacked kind of a data management system that allowed us to track these cases once the chief signed the discipline notice and when the officer requested an appeal. Um, the other thing is when um, our partners filed maybe a motion to continue, whether it was the hearing officer, um, maybe it was DPA, maybe it was our IA attorney, maybe it was the member, um, that also played a factor and we weren't able to track that. And then we had a hearing officer uh, shortage, which played a part in being able to schedule these chief's hearings on a more consistent and regular basis. Um, there are several entities that have to come together in order for these chief's hearings to take place. Uh, you know, you have the hearing officer, um, you have an attorney from DPA, our IA attorney, you have the named member, and then the named member's representative or attorney. And it's the scheduling of all those folks where you really need the stars to align in order to um, get a date and time for the, chief the chief's hearing to take place. Um, at the time, IA was trying to coordinate with all these entities um, to schedule the chief's hearings. And then, you know, we also had conflicts that would come up either, you know, with um, some of these entities and then just other priority matters that take place. Okay. Great. Thank you, Lieutenant Wilhelm. So I'm going to go right into uh, some changes that we've made. So I'm very thankful for DPA's audit and uh, agree that they have wonderful recommendations. But I do want to say that we've been talking about this in the office before the results of the audit. So um, even in October 2022, our IAD managing attorney uh, and the team realized that there was a backlog and we proposed some uh, modifications for the chief to review. Uh, a, a new process was adopted and it is more streamlined. So some of those changes that are already in effect. Uh, we now set a date and time for the chief's hearing that is sent with that notice of intent to discipline. The past practice was to give the member 10 days to decide whether or not they want to set the date. That new process went into effect November 2022. We have since uh, gained the services of an analyst, so we have better tracking mechanisms in play, and I'm very excited for her and the work that she's going to do in IAD. And then finally, I know I'm running out of time, additional proposals. Uh, we do have a staffing shortage and some of the positions that you know, we would like to fill if things work out right. That would alleviate part of this is to have another attorney, a paralegal, a legal process clerk. We've updated, or we're working on the update of 2.07 to include timelines for hearings. We really had a long discussion about what that timeline would be. We proposed 180 days 
because we think that's realistic based on our staffing and our workload that we can fit it into that time. But we also wanted to choose a time frame that wouldn't set us up for failure and try to be over aggressive there. Um, and then finally, we were gonna reverse the tables and we actually have a recommendation, although not award winning, for DPA. <laughs> and just because we both have um, staffing and workload issues that we're actually proposing that DPA handles, and this came from our attorneys, their own chief's hearings and uh, provide discovery. And that would we would share the workload and we're being serious about that. And that came from our IAD attorneys. And then finally, we're talking about increasing the members that can tend that can actually be at the hearings, meaning maybe commanders can um, listen to certain levels of discipline and we'll move forward that way. Okay, that concludes our presentation. Great, thank you. I, I had a question, I'm gonna start with page nine, the interactive part. So I know that the three um, buckets that you have, the first one you said we have about up to a year based on the 3304 deadline. What is the average wait time of how long your, it takes for you to file the case? I know DPA gives us an estimate on their cases, like there's so many cases that are you know, pre nine month, so many cases that are post nine month. Do you have that sort of tracking mechanism and or data? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so we have a unit order that requires the investigators to complete their investigation within six months. Um, I meet with them bi-weekly. And then we also have an internal case tracking spreadsheet that allows me to sort of keep track of if they're on track with those timelines. Um, I, I believe our current data management system, we could pull that information for you um, if, if needed, but. You have an average wait time, like you know, 50% of your cases are complete, the investigation is completed within the six month mark, 25 are within nine months. I, I, I don't I don't have that off the top of my head, but we could get that for you. Okay. And then on the second bucket, which is case review, what's the time frame for that? Because if you have a year on the first end of the officer noticed and date selected, how long is it taking to get to the red and the gray arrows? So I would say once the once the sergeant completes the investigation and it comes to um, my desk. Um, between uh, my desk and then it goes on to the captain, the commander, assistant chief, and then finally the chief. I would say the average on that is four weeks or so when it leaves them and then gets to the chief. Obviously there are things that, that come up that could extend that. For example, you know, we had a covered incident, officer involved shooting, you know, <laughs> things kind of, you know, uh, the workload, you know, delays and so, but just on average, I would say those cases move from the investigator through me to the chief in about four weeks. Okay. And then uh, the 24 number sounds great up until, you know, for uh, uh, scheduling in terms of August. I hope that there are no continuances and we can keep that, that date. On slide six, you know, where it talks about the main causes for delay in chief's hearings, I'm wondering if there's a way to ha sort of have, I think you mentioned it a little bit, Commander Yep, about the new process of giving them a date when the notice goes out. Um, but is there a way to schedule it so that um, the chiefs, uh, the hearing officers for these chiefs hearings have designated dates? Like they have to block out a date that this is the date and I'm gonna do four hearings on this date and sort of, you know, just prioritize these. Um, I mean, I know that they have other duties and responsibilities, but 
can that sort of shift in workload happen so that we can clear some of these? I think that's one of the solutions that the managing attorney, Ashley Worsham, has looked at okay. is could there could we find a day in the week um, that is designated for chief's hearings? Um, and I think those discussions have, have happened. And I, th I can speak on that. Uh, we have had those discussions with Ms. Worsham because uh, unfortunately, from a practical perspective, the majority of these cases are continued because the deputy chiefs are so busy. Um, and we, uh, we are hoping to, uh, we think that's a great resolution. Basically, I think there's four deputy chiefs, if I, if I, don't, if I remember, five, sorry, um, or four available, because I think one is on leave. Um, and, and to have them uh, devote half a day once every three weeks or, or something to, of that nature to just doing these because so many times we have things scheduled and, and they're scheduled very far in advance, almost a month in advance, and then they get pulled away from us uh, and the rescheduling process starts to happen again. Um, you know, I think that would that, that is a great idea and that's something that I have been discussing with my counterpart in, at DPA Legal. The other question I had, Chief, I think, and I didn't get an answer, is whether I know that you can desig designate folks to be the hearing officers. Um, have we made any progress on that? Because I know that I had volunteered the commission to step in and help you out, but I don't think that was a viable option. So, oh, sorry. The, um, the commanders are where we're, we're headed, and we, gotta, we had to put it in action and, and train them up, but we do believe that we can, we, we will do that. Not we believe, we, we vetted the idea, but we just gotta get them trained up and get this rolling. Do you have an ETA? I'll get back to you with that, because I gotta get with Ashley uh, Warsham, and, and I can follow up next week in terms of an ETA. I know Ashley's been on vacation, so. Well deserved. That, sure. that is something that we also discussed with Ms. Warsham. Um, and the reason we can't, we also discussed possibly going lower, but, the re, the, but there are reasons that we can't because uh, there's a difference between, you know, cap, uh, unions and commissioned officers versus non-commissioned officers. So commanders are a great resource um, and uh, hopefully can help with, uh, with the backlog. My last question is on slide 11, where you say DPA handles their own chief's hearings. I'm wondering how that would work, since they are presumably, in some of these, a prosecuting attorney. Oh, we're talking about the discovery, so the work that it takes to get to the hearing? Yeah, I mean, the discovery is the easiest part, to be honest with you. The discovery is electronic. We send it over uh, via PDF, OneDrive. We can obviously send it to um, the, the POA. I'm just concerned about setting our own chief's hearings because we have no control. We have even less control over the deputy chief's schedules, um, SFPD legal schedules, officer schedules, and the representative schedules than uh, SFPD legal does. So that's not, that's not really a feasible solution. But in terms of discovery, uh, you know, whether it's from us or from you guys, it's, it's an email usually or, you know, with a OneDrive link. So if that helps you, um, we're happy to do that. Uh, as soon as you give us the green light we, and, and, and let us know who to send it to, we are happy to send it. But I, I don't think that we, unfortunately, we, can't, we cannot well, can't, ha have our own chief's hearings. Well, can't, when they send out the notice of intent, you, they, like, like I said, have your dates in advance to pick from so that when you do do that, maybe there's some dates that have already been selected, something preemptively so, that so, have been. 
So here's how it works right now. Um, we get the notice of intent to discipline letter um, from the, the legal department. Uh, we get a copy of it, and it does have a date uh, within it that notifies the officer um, and us of when a potential hearing, chief's hearing, will take place if the officer avails himself of the um, right to appeal. Um, practically speaking, those dates are hardly ever followed. Um, I did an informal survey of our legal team. There's been four requests in the last year where we were un we, where we requested that the date be changed. The majority of the dates are being changed by the representatives of the officers uh, and by the deputy chiefs. So I'm not sure that while the intention was great, um, the problem is sticking to that date. I, I don't think we're, do, we're we're having a hard time sticking I, to that date. I have a couple comments on that, and this is just from my conversations with the managing attorney, Ashley Worsham. I think if you're open to the idea, I think it's the actual production of the discovery that's taking a lot of their time. Okay. So I think if you're even open to working with her on how that can be either expedited or the workload can be shared, I think sure. we can have a conversation about what those nuances are great. between the attorneys. So great. that's yeah, great. I mean, you know, I... I this is the first that we've heard of it. Usually we, we have these discussions and, you know. Oh, they uh, didn't even tell you about the idea? No. <laughs> um, this they is the they first chose time. me to introduce it. Yeah. Oh, so yes. you're, oh, okay. Yeah. You're, you spring it on them. Nice job. I like that. Um, so, ha, you know, that, that's, that's actually, the, the discovery piece is an easy fix because most of the time, um, the inform literally uh, as soon as we get the notice of intent to discipline letter we can definitely send out a the OneDrive link like we send to SFPD to the officer and the representative the the biggest problem I see is that we don't always know who the representative is until the very end. So if they, if the, if SFPD can share with us how they find out who the representative is, um, then we are more than happy to help with that endeavor. We we just have no clue how that stuff happens behind the scenes. Well, at least you're gonna have a conversation. Yep, and I'm gonna have I'm gonna have ice cream with Lieutenant Wilhelm, so I can say I've had ice cream with a cop as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, President Elias. I, I think a lot of the questions got answered in, in that last call. I just wanted to go. Uh, I'm, I'm focused on slide 11, the additional proposal. So it sounds like, you know, fill staff positions, that's something that we want to do. There's nothing needs to be done there. It seems like 2.07, um, President Elias and DPA and the chief are working on that uh, already. Um, it sounds like that their DPA handles its own chief's hearings as a viable option um, that now the DPA and ID can talk about, and I think President Elias covered, so I want to ask about that. For increasing the number of hearing officers, I thought we'd already done this. So, not, so the chief expanded commanders that's in process, the only holdup is getting the commanders trained up on, on discipline? Well, or is there, are there other roadblocks to that happening? Potentially, there could be other roadblocks, but we, we got to work, we will work through that. But the main thing is they got to be trained up and, and uh, those potential roadblocks may not be roadblocks, but I will have to report back. Okay, so hopefully when you told President Elias you'd come back next week with uh, the, t the timeline, that can include, hopefully, if you know more about the, the roadblocks at that stage, too. Yeah. And how many commanders are, like, how much would this increase the pool? How many commanders are going to the training? There are six. Six. 
Okay, so we'd go from four to ten potential well, hearing officers. Five to eleven. Five to eleven. Yeah. Okay. Um, what about? Is there any? Do you think that's sufficient at this time? Or are you still looking at outside officers or or outside hearing officers, or retired command staff members? Uh, no, we're not looking at retired command staff members. So that would be it for this for now. If okay. We can do that. That's you know doubling of the resources that we could put at this. Uh, so that's where we are right now. Would there be any limitations on the manner of cases that commanders could hear as distinct from cases deputy chiefs could hear? Ideally, no. Uh, I mean, these are these are all chiefs level hearings anyway. So ideally, no. I mean, I don't. I don't of course, there's a process for the commission. So um, ideally, no. And that, that's we just want to make sure that that's thoroughly vetted. Okay. And are any of the potential roadblocks to increasing to commanders? Are any of them? On the commission, is there any action we need to take to help streamline that process, or is it just? I don't believe so. Okay. You know, this is something that definitely there's some there's some bargaining issues, I, I believe here, but we want to make sure that we're we're clear on that. Okay. Thank you, Chief. I just had one comment. So we're also working through a backlog, and I think as we work really diligently to get that back that backlog, these will be sufficient, please, uh, or should be, moving forward. Thank you. And thank you, Commander Yap and Lieutenant Wilhelm and uh, Sergeant Wells for your presentation. Okay. Thank you. Have a great evening. Thank you, Sergeant. Could we go to public comment? For members of the public that would like to make public comment, please approach the podium. There is no public comment. Line item 11, discussion and possible action to direct the Chief of to rescind plainclothes and social media bureau orders at the request of the commission, discussion and possible action. Thank you. Thank you for this item. So I was um, not present at the last um, commission meeting when this item first uh, came about, but I did observe the robust discussion and I'm glad that it's been had. Um, I think there are various viewpoints as to how we got here, but I think that the important thing at this point is to focus on the fact that we are here. Based on my discussions with the chief, he has committed to me that um, we are here and that the focus going forward is how do we solve it so that we don't end up here again um, and to put uh, things in place so that we don't, that this doesn't happen again um, and that uh, we set ourselves up for success moving forward. Um, I did review the resolution. I did make some edits, but I'm going to turn it over to Commissioner Benedicto to uh, outline the specifics. Thank you very much, President Elias. Um, you know, as President Elias said, we had a robust discussion, uh, a very robust discussion uh, on May 17th, and so I don't think we need to relitigate that discussion. My goal is to, is to move this fairly quickly. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping on the timeline. On May 17th, this item was discussed by this commission uh, in a slightly different version of this resolution was considered. On May 31st, a uh, revised version of this resolution was posted and made available on the Police Commission's website uh, 10 days in advance of this meeting that remains available on the Police Commission website now. On June 1st, 72 hours before um, this uh, meeting, um, an updated version was posted and available um, to the public and posted on the Commission's websites. Um, changes between the May 31st and June 1st draft were not substantive, uh, and we worked closely uh, with the City Attorney on the changes between the May 31st and June 1st uh, draft, as well as between the May 17th and May 31st draft. 
uh, today on June 6th. Um, a version that made minor non-substantive revisions was posted to the commission website. Uh, it remains available on the commission website now and was distributed by commission staff to commissioners. These changes were also shared with the city attorney. Um, and the af on the afternoon of June 6th today, I had a call with our deputy city attorney, Elisa Cabrera, uh, to discuss another, um, as well as commission staff, to discuss another non-substantive change that I'll be providing as an oral amendment uh, that was made in consultation with the city attorney as well, which I will get to. So that's uh, the housekeeping on the timeline here. Um, like I said, I don't plan to repeat our discussion. Uh, there was a, a, a thorough and vibrant discussion that we've had. Uh, the bottom line as, as to why we're here, I think was, was probably most well articulated by one of our public commenters from the Bar Association of San Francisco uh, at the May 17th meeting, which the bottom line is that the practice of making general policy through bureau orders is not consistent with 21st century policing practices. It's not consistent with best practices, and it's not consistent with the progress that's been made here. Uh, these bureau orders um, were done without the advice and consent of this, of this commission. As it notes, it's the opinion of this resolution that it, it presents a real threat and undermines uh, certain authorities of the commission. Uh, the resolution uh, will speak for itself. and. Uh, I want, I want to be clear that this resolution is uh, a statement of disapproval from this commission about some of the actions that were taken. And as uh, President Elias said, I want to be clear that it um, uh, should be a clear and unambiguous message that we don't want this to happen again, and we don't want policy to be made in this fashion. As the resolution notes, there have been laudable reforms in this department. It's been an honor to be a part of them since 2016. And I think it's important, and I've had this conversation with the chief, I think it's important to call out when a lot of progress has been made, but equally important to note when things are done that are inconsistent with that, which is what we see here. Like President Elias said, what we're focused on today, and I'm most focused on with the revised resolution, is outcomes, is making sure that we're on the same page and moving forward and that this will not happen again. I have had uh, numerous conversations with the chief, and, um, and I'll, I'll ask him to, to confirm this in a moment, but that um, this commission is not asking the chief to co-sign any of the, the, the findings in the whereas clauses. Those belong solely with the commission. I know the chief disagrees uh, very strongly with uh, a number of them, both in the, the May 17th version and the current version. That disagreement was, like I said, uh, discussed very clearly. Um, at our prior discussion, but as I asked on, on May 17th, I'm, I'm confirming with the chief that in terms of the outcomes of this resolution, which is rescinding DGO, uh, the, the plain codes order after DGO 5.08 is fully enacted and rescinding the social media order after the commission-led DGO process is fully completed is an outcome that you feel comfortable with and you can support, chief. Yes, uh, it is. Thank you. Um, so with, uh, I'd also like to note that, uh, as I said on May 17th, I think this is a first step. This is not uh, the be-all, end-all of this. I think uh, something that we've all discussed, I know I've discussed with the chief, is that uh, updates are needed to Department General Order 3.01 um, to make sure that it's clear what, uh, the, even clearer what the, um, what the commission's view is on things like bureau orders, and I look forward to having that discussion. There are a number of other changes to 3.01 that need to be made, so I think this is the first step in making sure that we're not backsliding and making continued forward progress on 21st century 
policing principles. Um, this has been uh, a process to go from the draft we had uh, and discussed here on May 17th to the one we had today, and to have like to express my gratitude before I introduce uh, the final amendment. Um, I'd like to um, I'd like to thank our deputy city attorney Elisa Cabrera, who has patiently read every version and every proposed language up to and including um, su suggesting the oral amendment that I'll, that I'll be making today. Uh, the deputy city attorney has been helpful and um, consulted throughout this process, and I, I'm very grateful for that for that assistance. Um, I would like to thank the chief. This is obviously a resolution, like I said, that is one of unambiguous disapproval, and I'm, I'm glad that the chief was able uh, to work and, and focus on, on the outcomes and that we were able to have uh, to work and reach a consensus and an agreement on a way to move forward. Because like President Elias said, I think the most important thing is that we're moving forward on these, on these actions. I'd like to thank my colleagues and fellow commissioners who have also pestered. Um, but uh, in particular, I'd like to thank Vice President Carter, Carter Oberstone for raising this issue with the urgency and seriousness that it deserved and with a clarity and certainty that is incredibly admirable um, and, I, and, and providing the base of, of the, uh, you know, the, the, of the, this resolution is based off. I, I don't think we'd be here if the vice president hadn't raised it uh, with the way he did, and so I'm very grateful for that. Um, and I'm very grateful to President Elias for uh, helping to work on the revisions in this process uh, and for bringing this back today because I think it's important that we pass this resolution. I think it's important that we get it right, and so I thank President Elias for, for bringing it back so that we can get it right. And uh, with that, I would like to make a motion to adopt this Bureau order as the version that was posted um, with minor revisions on June 6th and sent to the commission by commission staff with two further non-substantive edits. One is to remove the name of the recipients at the end of the resolution after consultation with um, the uh, with director Diana Liberoche, we don't think it's necessary to include uh, those names under the CC line, so to remove those names, as well as to um, clarify uh, one change to the um, second to last further resolved clause. This was a change that I discussed with the city attorney, <coughs> our deputy city attorney, Lisa Cabrera, today, and um, to make this edit, just clarifying uh, exactly what we want this process to look like. And so this is the second to last further resolved clause on page three. It will read, further resolved, the chief of police is directed to provide a draft of the investigative social media accounts DGO to the commission within 10 days, which will be used by the commission and posted pursuant to DGO 3.0104.C.3. The draft will be available for comment from the chief of police, the Department of Police Accountability, and members of the public for 30 days. And with those edits, that is my motion. Thank you. Before I ask for a second, I assume you also would like to thank the commission staff for posting and keeping all of these documents on our website and comporting with our notice requirement, even on their days off. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the commission staff, uh, not only doing that, but providing helpful advice when there were little uh, things that we, we'd missed. And so uh, it's an invaluable role. And, and they were particularly went above and beyond here. So thank you. Can I get a second? Yell it out. Second. Commissioner Byrne. Uh, thank you. Um, I um, ha have a few concerns. Um, um, 
the, fir the, the first concern I hope uh, can be resolved. Um, I, you know, I, I disagree with the, the language that there weren't substantive changes that, that we got in an email at 9 o'clock uh, this morning. Um, the third resolution, which you, which is a, you made a minor amendment to, is is fundamentally different from the the third resolution that was posted before, uh, particularly because it gives this 10-day turnaround for the police department uh, uh, to present the the, the draft uh, of the DGO within 10 days. I, I understand the urgency, uh, and I don't want to uh, diminish the urgency uh, of changing it, but realistically, on something this important, is 10 days really, um, I, I don't see, uh, you know, I'm not asking for an unlimited thing, but, but 30 days, which is more similar to what the previous one said, I think is much more appropriate. and. You know, that's why I wouldn't categorize it as minor, minor and non-substantive, and it's not a, a big request. But I, I think it's, it's, it's fair to the department to, to give them the 30 days to do it. You know, uh, this is a notice of contempt to the department. You know, uh, give them time to draft the thing and think it through. What we're going to get is a rush job in, in 10 days. Um, the, the second point that that I want to make is. The, the the four resolves on on what is now page three of the resolution are, are substantive things saying uh, directing the chief of police to do certain matters, and as I said, other than other than my objection to that tight timeline of the ten days, which I think is unduly harsh, um, I, I I agree with them. The, the but the first resolution, to me, is just a. Uh, um, it's an unnecessary, there is enough in the whereases that state the facts as to what happened that, that it's not necessary to, to slap the department uh, more than it needs to be slapped um, with that because it doesn't direct the department to do anything. It just says, we find this. And the whereases speak to the facts and and the resolution speaks to what we intend to do. And I, I, as I said at the beginning, I would like to vote for this thing. But I, and I want to send a message too, but I don't want to put what I think is um, uh, a, a slapdown in a way that doesn't affect what we need to be done. And that that first resolution doesn't direct the chief to do anything. It just makes a statement of this commission. But the whereases do that. The whereases state the facts as, as to what's going on. So I, I know that I'm, I would be slow in jeopardy because I didn't get to push the button fast enough. Um, but uh, I would like to make those uh, two amendments. Number one, that we give the department 30 days. And number two, that we get rid of that first resolution and then just go to the four that direct the chief as to what to do. Uh, anyway, uh, that's all I have to say. Mayor's President, President, Vice President Carter Opers, 
I, I just want to respond to, to, okay. to Commissioner Byrne, if I may. Go ahead. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Commissioner Byrne, for that. Um, I just wanted to clarify a little bit about the 10-day. Uh, the, the reason the edit is not, uh, is, is not substantive and it's just a minor change is because it's the overall period is the same. Under the prior draft, and this is a conversation I had with the chief previously, it's simply clarifying what the, what the period will look like. So under the prior draft, we were giving a 35 days under a different provision of 3.01, um, it was always contemplated in conversations that uh, an early draft would be submitted and there'd be time to revise. So all we're doing here is uh, requiring 10 days for that initial submission. The department is free as uh, in the amendment to continue to, st to improve it in the course at 30 days. So actually the department is netting 40 days instead of 35 to provide input. And it, I also don't think the case will be a rough job because a rush job as you stated, because the basis for their DGO will be the bureau order which by the department's own admission, it spent two years working on um, as well. So it's not, we're not asking the department to write uh, a, a complete DGO from scratch. Uh, this is a, a significant topic that I've, I've spoken about with the chief, and he believes that the 10 plus 30 in the current draft is, is doable. And so that's, that's what I, would, I just want to respond to that. And I'll note that it's not a change that we're directing them. The, the, it always said shall. So with the oral amendment tonight, at the suggestion of the city attorney, we just change it to direct the chief as opposed to the chief shall. Yeah, I don't have, a, a, with the oral amendment, I don't have okay. a problem with that. But maybe I'm, I'm getting old and, and, uh, and, and missing everything. But the one that was posted on, on June 1st, or the one that we got in the packet, says um, that um, the chief of police shall present the investigated social media accounts, GGO, within 35 days. The one tonight says the DGO shall spend a draft of the investigative accounts, GGO, to the commission of the Department of Police Accountability within 10 days. So maybe I'm reading my language wrong as because of what goes on after, but I see 10 and I see 35. Right, so Commissioner Byrne, I think the thing to notice between the two drafts is the prior draft, the DGO was gonna be revised principally by the department under the 30-day expedited process. Under this, under this new draft, it will be a commission-led DGO. So the commission will be taking, uh, will be principally charged with a revision. So there's the 10, so the 10 days just for the department to provide an initial draft, and, and by the way, it already has an initial draft. It's the bureau order that it worked on for the better part of two years. So, um, so, so that's, I think, I think addresses your, your question. Um, so I, I just wanted to add one person to the, to the litany of thanks that, um, that Commissioner Benedicto um, enumerated, which I wanted to thank Janelle Kaywood, Director Kaywood, who's in the house tonight, because we really couldn't have been here without her. These bureau orders were issued without any notice to the commission or any notice to the public. Um, and we would have never, and they would have never been posted to the website. So we would have never discovered this were it not for Director Kaywood, including it in her Sparks report. Um, I don't, I don't know, I don't think that that was necessarily an easy decision, um, but that's the type of oversight that the public demands. Um, and so I just wanna thank Director Kaywood, um, because again, we just would never have known without her actions. Um, when I uh, initially uh, introduced this resolution at our last meeting, I said that the department's actions posed an existential threat to the commission. 
Um, the department acted in secret to usurp the commission's policymaking authority. Um, it was outrageous, it was unethical, and it was unlawful. And I said that the commission needed to take decisive action to <coughs> forestall potentially irreparable harm to this commission's institutional standing and to defend the public's right to independent oversight and policymaking in the policing arena. And I think that this revised resolution does that. There were a number of edits made to the resolution. I don't necessarily love every single one, but this resolution does the one thing that it absolutely must do, which is that it sends a clear message that this conduct will not be tolerated and provides a real deterrent to this ever happening again, which is the most important thing. And the, re and the deterrent, the chief deterrent that it provides is that it, it makes the social media policy a commission-led policy. And I think to understand why it provides deterrence, we need to understand why the department issued these bureau orders in the first instance. And as Chief Scott said at the last meeting, to hear him tell it, the reason they implemented these bureau orders is because they needed a policy on the books, that, that we needed to have something and something was, was better than nothing or revision was better than nothing. And there's just two things about that. First, the, the need the need to act swiftly can never be a reason to act unlawfully. Whether, it, whether it's violating the speed limit is not, you know, the need to get somewhere in a hurry is not a justification for violating the speed limit. It's also not a justification for violating our city's charter. And secondly, that rationale we know can't possibly be right because the department could have gotten a policy faster had it used the lawful process and gotten a DGO in 30 days, which our current uh, policy permits. And so the fact that this resolution makes social media a commission-led policy uh, has essentially taken this out of the department's hands and sends a clear message, message that, the, that this is the course that the commission will take in the future if the department were ever to do this again. The very last thing I want to say, and I think one thing that hasn't been said at all on this and, and that's been missed, is that are the effects of this action or this course of conduct on officers? Right now, I presume officers need to be trained up on these bureau orders of, of questionable legal authority. At the same time, for example, the plainclothes bureau order directly contradicts the current commission policy on plainclothes officers, and it contradicts provisions in the body-worn camera DGO. So right now, officers are being asked to follow a bureau order on the one hand that is also inconsistent with commission policy and may be put in the untenable position of being directed to take action in furtherance of <coughs> these bureau orders that might also get them disciplined because it violates a DGO. And I think that that's extremely unfair position to put officers in. The other thing is that it not only contradicts current policy, it contradicts what will be the new policy. It differs markedly from the plainclothes DGO that's coming down the pike. 
And so we will again have to retrain officers on the new policy once it's, in, once it's instituted, which I think is a recipe for confusion. And so I just wanted to highlight um, that this, that, that, that the issuance of this Bureau of Orders is not just a threat to the commission as an institution and to the public's right to oversight, but it's also terrible for our officers in the field and it's incredibly unfair to them. So for all those reasons, um, I would urge my colleagues to support the resolution. Chief Scott. Thank you, uh, President Elias. So uh, I'm not going to rehash all of my arguments on some of what Vice President Car Carter Oberstone, I think I stated that last week, so I don't think that's necessary. <clears throat> However, I, I do want to say, just point out one thing, or two things. Um, the department, as required by DGO 3.01, did give notice to DPA. That's how at least one of the policies came to their attention. <clears throat> and on the other policy, uh, there was conversations, or the bureau order, rather, there was conversations with DPA uh, along the way as well. So that part I don't agree with in terms of uh, Vice President's assessment of how that happened. But I'm not here to argue. I just want to state the facts. Uh, the other thing is in terms of the policies themselves, I do want to thank all of the commission for working with the department on this resolution. And to me, it's about the work. I said two points, but I'll make a third point. And I disagree with this because I don't think it's a punishment for the department to be forced, if, if you want to call it that, to work with this commission. We should want to work with this commission. So to look at that like we're being punished and, and the punishment is now you have to work with the commission. I just, I don't think that's well placed and I don't think that's the right spirit of, I totally get that the commission is the oversight board. That's been made very clear. But to term this conversation like we're being punished, now you gotta go to work with the commission. What, what kind of message is that actually sending? Definitely not a constructive one, in my opinion. So I just wanna say that and thank you and I appreciate it. Thank you, I, you know, I don't think it's productive productive to go back and forth. Like I said, we need to focus on the solution. We're here now. We have a resolution. You've, you've seen it. Uh, the uh, rest of the commission seen it, and we're, we're moving forward. You know, how we got here or where we are doesn't matter. We're here now, and we have a solution. So, um, Commissioner Yee. Uh, thank you very much there, um, President Cindy Elias. Uh, thank you very much for, I guess, uh, rewriting the uh, I guess this uh, resolution to uh, be more respectful for the police chief and the rest of the members. Um, but uh, I'm just looking at the, as, um, as I printed out the, the other day, <laughs> it, it says 35 days, within 35 days, that further resolve, the chief of police shall present the investigation social media account DGO within 35 days. That's what I saw, and then it's ten days on the new one. So is it is it substantial? Yeah, I think Vice President Carter Overstone uh, explained okay. the the difference yeah. as to the time because now it's not the department that'll be handling it; it'll be the commission. So we'll, we have a different timeline. Right. So, uh, so, so it won't. It's not going to um, jam them up. The department is not going to be jammed up by it. It's not going to cause any issues. It's you know the chief has cleared the timeline and made sure that we're not 
they're not going to, you know, that they're going to miss a deadline. It, it's fine. So the question is, why was it written 35 days and now changed to 10? Can I answer that? No, no, no. This, I guess that's Kevin Benedict was there. Yes. Yeah. So under the prior version, in 35 days, we'd be here hearing the DGO. In this version, in 40 days, we're here hearing the DGO. So the, the, the total number of days for consideration is similar. It's 40, it's actually longer. It's 40 instead of 35. The difference is that under this system, the public can see it sooner, and the chief felt like he could, we could make that timing work. But the outcome is the same, which is this commission, uh, and, and, and in both timelines, the, the department's able to, after their 10-day submission, say, actually, we want to make this change when it's up for final consideration. So the outcome is, in the original one, was in 35 days, this commission is considering the DGO, and now it's in 10 plus 30, so 40 days, the commission is hearing the DGO. So it's not, that's why the change is not substantial, if that answers your question. It, it, is this like you pay your taxes in 10 days or 35 days? So I would rather do it in 35 days. I'm, I'm just considering that you just give the, the chief ample no, time it's, to it's do it. No, it's 35 or 40. Yeah, oh, no, 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 no. The first thing is 35 days, when you have to pay it, right? So that, that's what I'm looking at. So it's 35 days, you've written down. Uh, next day, you change it to 10. So uh, To use so your analogy, the check is due in 40 days, and the check yeah. was due in 35 days. Yeah, it's just like if I say I'll pay you in 35 days, uh, you know, you're writing out your check, so you have more time to do it thoughtfully as compared to uh, you, pay, you pay in 10 days. So I, I always say, you know, give the person more time. You know, right. And, and it's all, at the end of the day, you say it's, it's all the same. It's similar. Instead of 35 days plus and, or 40 days. That's why we went to the chief and asked him if he was okay with this change in time, and he was. And since he's comfortable with We're it, not. that's, I think, why Commissioner Benedicto and I moved, made the change. As a commissioner, I just don't like to be changed. You, you give me a date one day, and then tomorrow you give me another date. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. Commissioner Walker? <laughs> uh, Can we come back? No, no, no. Um, I would like to thank Commissioner Benedicto for the rewrite. I think that um, it's important that we call things out that feel like we're not working together. So I, I'm supportive of this. I think that the goal here is that we work together on these things. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, I would like some of the, there's still some punitive language in here that I would love to not have in here. But I, if I'm voting for this, it's to move on and to get into the business of working together so I just want to be on record for that, that my goal here is that we work together on these issues. Um, I don't know what it's like being on the front line of policing. I don't know what it's like to confront the kind of dangers that the officers do on a daily basis. I can sort of look at the directives that we get from the mayor and you know other entities, the mayor and the board and others about what they want policy-wise and you know, sort of look at the results and data that we get from the various reports that we see. So I just want to thank the chief, too, for, for getting ahead of this process in some ways um, and hope that we can um, 
be really transparent in all of what we do together, both the commission and the department. So um, thank you, <coughs> Commissioner Benedicto, for making us able to support this. <laughs> Making, not making, <laughs> allowing. Hail Dave. Commissioner Byrne. Uh, thank you. Um, making, making, forcing. Two, two points. I guess when I read the the Friday version as opposed to the Wednesday version, um, I was under the impression that the, the comment period for the public would take place after that, uh, and which are when you get the new one. Um, the comment period will take place after the 10 days if, if I, and so I'm, like I said, I, to me, you know, I, I found that, you know, um, substantive enough that I, that I would want that. And I desperately want to vote for this thing. Yeah. But I don't want to vote for um, the first resolution of the okay. thing. And I'd we like to vote on that first to see whether that can be taken out so that we can. And I'd like to vote on the on the know, 30 know, days versus that oh. first. But I'm not quick at Jeopardy, so I understand that you were able to make the resolution first. But I... But I uh, well, we can move on to it right now if you if you're ready to end your. Uh, I am indeed. Okay, good. So, Commissioner Benedicto, you have a motion on the floor that has been seconded. You have two options. Option one is you can accept Commissioner Burns' amendment. If you do, then we will second it and move forward. If you do not, we already have a second on the floor and we'll take a roll call vote. What would you like to do? I'd like to proceed with my motion as seconded and, and public comment is taken. Great. So that's what we will do. <clears throat> Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 11, please approach the podium. There is no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? No. Commissioner Byrne is no. Commissioner Yi? Uh, no. Commissioner Yi is no. Vice President Cutter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Cutter Overstone is yes, and President Elias. Yes. President Elias is yes. You have six yeses. I'm sorry, five yeses. No, I think, oh, yes, five and two. Got it. Next item. Line item 12, public comment on all matters pertaining to item 14 below closed session, including public comment on item 13, vote whether to hold item 14 in closed session. If you'd like to make public comment, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item 13, vote on whether to hold item 14 in closed session, including a vote on whether to assert the attorney-client privilege with regards to items 14A through 14C, San Francisco Administrative Code Section 67.10A. Action. Motion to hold item 14 in closed session and assert the attorney-client privilege with regard to items 14A through 14C. Second. Second. All right, on the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Scott Overstone? Yes. Vice President Scott Overstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. We will go into closed session.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
back in open session and you still have a quorum. Next item, please. Line item 15, vote to elect whether to disclose any or all discussion on item 14 held in closed session, including a vote on whether to assert the attorney-client privilege with regards to items 14A through 14C. San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.12A, action. Motion to not disclose item 14 and assert the attorney-client privilege for 14A through C. Second. For members of the public like to make public comment regarding line item 15, please approach the podium. There is no public comment. Commissioner Walker, yes. how do you vote? Yes. And Commissioner Benedicto, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Cutter-Oberstone? Yes. Vice President Cutter-Oberstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. Line item 16, adjournment.